When Liberty Valance rode to town, the women folk would hide. Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast. Look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing very well, Darren. Very well. How are you doing? I'm good. I am slightly panicked because we are talking about a movie and a director today that I am in no way qualified to discuss. So I have arranged three fantastic panelists to join us for a discussion of John Ford's classic revisionist western, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. First up, we have the fantastic Ronan Doyle. How are you, Ronan? Very good, thank you. Thanks for having me back. Ah, it's our pleasure. The wonderful Eva Martin. How are you, Eva? I'm good, thanks. Nice to be here again. And fresh from Twitter, I'm guessing, Jason Coyle. How are you, Jason? <laughs> I'm not on Twitter, Darren. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, I'm great. Perfect. Um, so Fresh from dinner. Fresh, no? Yes. I thought you said fresh on Twitter. Either way, I'm on fresh from dinner. The dinner was fantastic. Thank you. Perfect. I... I had these bratwurst and beetroot. It looked like Chancellor Gorkin had just been murdered. Um, <laughs> I gotta guess that's a Star Wars joke, is it? You're that close. Was a Star Wars close. joke, isn't it? You're close, though. Um, oh, okay. Close. Yeah. 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 Sorry, that's okay. Darren and I love Star Trek Six. Yeah. Um, Um, So this is why I feel dangerously unqualified talking about this movie in question. But yes, so we are talking about uh, a John... Me too. Do do you know, like, the the confidence of just being oblivious to most things and, like, just walking into a conversation, not knowing anything, not worried at all. um, I suppose that's my role, is not to know anything. Um, But okay, so let's talk a little bit about The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is a relatively new entry uh, on the list, actually. It's been coming in and going out quite recently um, as a result of kind of shifts on the list, changes, movies coming out and generating kind of a vacuum into which it's been popping in. And when it popped in, I thought we would talk about it in large part because we have not talked about John Ford on this podcast. We have not really talked about Westerns outside of Django Unchained. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about arguably one of the defining voices of American cinema, at least in the 20th century, one of the directors most responsible for guiding the nation kind of on cinema. He has been described as a homegrown Shakespeare by his biographer, Joseph McBride, chronicling America's national history on screen with an epic vision that spanned nearly two centuries from the Revolutionary War to Vietnam. While Ford's vision of America is intensely patriotic, it does not flinch from confronting the country's tragic failures, the times when it did not live up to its ideals. Whatever events he depicts, Ford's natural allegiance is always towards the spirit of the American common people. So I wanna, before we jump in and we talk about the, the man who shot Liberty Valance, I want to ask will, our three I guests. I will say, by the way, um, we have discussed um, who shot Liberty Valance in an, in an old feature in the show, our in and out chart. Yes, yes, it was. It was. It was in and out. He's always the one coming in and out. It was like that. And um, what was it? Um, it was one of those... There was another movie. It was like an Ealing comedy when Arsenic like, in Old Days. Uh, no, I think it was. Um, no, actually, you could be right. Uh, what do I? What did I want to say? It was. I was. I was going to say Bedknobs and Broomsticks, but that's not what <laughs> that's it was. Not either. an Ealing comedy. Uh, that's not an Ealing comedy at all. Um, no, it'll it'll come to me in a second. I do remember when I when I saw it on um, I think Now TV recently. It said like this. This this film contains. Um, it was this, it was the it was the, the Indiana Temple Jones the Temple of Doom warning intro. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas How many unfortunate this. stereotypes does Alec Guinness play in this movie? Exactly. Yeah. 
So the, the, we, we, we have discussed it, but it was one of those things where like, we were like, what, what, is, what is Gangs of Wasipur? Um, and um, I, think, I think we didn't really know what it was, and we didn't know what this was either. Um, so I want to ask actually our, our three panelists, because I reached out to three people who, A, have an incredible knowledge of cinema, who have forgotten more about cinema than myself or Andrew will probably ever know, but also who I know have kind of seen the movie in question, have kind of a depth of knowledge. But I want to ask, like, Aoife, what is your relationship to John Ford as a filmmaker? Um, like in terms of his work as, as like an American master, do you have any strong opinions? Um, do you have any kind of takes? Do you think he is one of the best filmmakers who ever lived? Um, yes, I, I do. I mean, I've, I suppose I've been watching John Ford movies since, since I was a kid, like before I knew who John Ford even was. Um, I've always been a big fan of Westerns and used to watch lots of them when I was younger, back when, you know, Westerns were actually shown on television. Um, so, you know, I was, I was aware of John Wayne before I was aware of John Ford. But, uh, you know, as as I grew and as my love of cinema grew, um, I became much more aware of of Ford's output. And, you know, he's a much more versatile filmmaker than people would give him credit for, I think. I mean, it's not just Westerns. You look at, you know, sort of the social commentary of Grapes of Wrath or even films like, you know, The Quiet Man, which was my granny's favourite film. You know, he's... He's um, made a he's made an awful lot of films. I haven't seen all of them, but I've seen quite a few, and I would definitely be a bit of a fan. Um, like just to give a sense of scale to like Ford as a filmmaker, he directed films for almost sixty years, from the mid-teens through to nineteen seventy-six. Something like hundred and thirty-seven motion pictures in all. He is the only director to have four Best Director Oscars uh, on his shelf, although presumably he doesn't anymore, given that he's dead. But he he won those four uh, awards. They and might still be on his shelf. They they might, to be fair. Um, the Ingmar Bergman it's like a grant of probate, outstanding, <laughs> and they can't grant that. Sh- uh... Um, shelf to anybody yes. yeah well that's the thing with the oscars your family can't your family has an option to sell them back to the academy i think for one cent uh, or they can hold on to them after you die that's the option that your family has um sorry this turn took a rather dark turn but also ingmar bergman has called for the world's greatest filmmaker and orson wells like when we talked about this we talked about citizen kane when he was figuring out how to direct his first movie he watched stagecoach 40 times and when asked what american directors he favored he replied the old masters by which i mean john ford john ford and john ford 72 oscar nominations between 1931 and 1964 uh which is is an absolutely outstanding record but ronan what about yourself in terms of John Ford as a filmmaker. What's your what's your relationship? What's your kind of opinion of him? Yeah, I would have seen quite a few over the years. It's actually revisiting this um, recently was was the first I've seen in, in quite a long time. I think maybe since um, the Rising of the Moon, the cinema a couple of years ago, they showed it in the IFI, um, and that's a good example of his diversity. Obviously, he's very well known for the westerns and and the like, Scrapes of Wrath, as as Eva mentioned. But there's there's a lot of you know, very diverse things in there. The likes of The Rising of the Moon, Young Cassidy, he had a kind of obsession with his Irish-American identity, and there's some really interesting stuff that came out of that. Um, I don't know if, for me, I'd rank him as, as one of the very best. It's just a, a personal preference thing, but you, you can't really ignore his um, his impact, in the Western particularly, but the wider structure of Hollywood, almost. He he was across so many big changes that happened in that time. Yeah, I mean, it, like he's, he's arguably one of the great studio directors, like, working through the studio system, but then arguably 
one of the directors that a lot of the new wave kind of latched on to, like Peter Bogdanovich was a huge fan, uh, very famously uh, for a very troublesome interview subject. I think when Bogdanovich was doing his work, trying to get Ford kind of reassessed. Um, there, like if you were listening to the podcast, you must remember this, Karina Longworth's Hollywood History. She did a recent season on Polly Platt. And there's a significant stretch of that that accounts to uh, accounts of Peter Bogdanovich being deeply frustrated, trying to like recognize Ford as an auteur and dealing with Ford being a particularly cantankerous interviewer. And you mentioned his Irish heritage as well. It's worth noting, I think, like he would lie about being born in Ireland. He would lie about his birth name being Irish when in fact he was a, a child of immigrants over in America. And in fact, actually you read interviews from papers in the 60s and 70s and they would offer that account of Ford as an Irish immigrant instead of a first generation Irish immigrant or second generation, uh, which is fascinating as well. But Jay, what about yourself in terms of, of John Ford, your, your relationship to Ford, your take on him as a director? Yeah, I, I similarly to Aoife, um, I grew up watching Westerns. My dad was a huge Western fan, so I would have watched them with him a lot when I was younger. It was probably the first time I recognized genre, I guess, for want of a better thing. It was the first films I latched onto that I really loved. Ford was obviously a huge part of that and they kind of, the Monument Valley, the John Wayne, the, all that kind of stuff, the iconography, I guess, from, from him. I, I then get when you get older and you realise, A, that there's one filmmaker behind a lot of it, and then you start to discover, similarly to Rowan, I watched Rising of the Moon a couple of years ago, which is an absolute hoot, uh, having an, an Irish uh, set film. And things like it, and Rowan mentioned the Irish-American stuff, like Quiet Man, The Informer, Plowing the Stars, he did an adaptation of it. It's supposed to be absolutely terrible, but I do want to watch it because uh, it does look like fun. But he, like, he was very interested in that. And he just, he, I, I think, I think older generations, particularly my dad's generation would have been like, I think there's an older male kind of Western fan thing from the, that, that he passed down. I think that like my, my dad and his friends all would all watch Westerns. They were kind of, because they made so many of them. And Aoife alluded to earlier, they used to show them on TV all the time when I was growing up. So I was obsessed. I, I, I really like for it. I think he's done incredible films and he can't be dismissed in any way, shape or form. But he's not somebody I go back to very often anymore. Even whilst knowing how important he is, and like also it's like hundreds of films that <laughs> he's made a lot of films in the twenties and thirties that I haven't seen. Um, but it's like I mean, you can't you can't dismiss him as a filmmaker. He's, like he's done everything. But I, I'd say I to somebody like this is the first one I've watched in his in a, in a few years. That I've kind of gone out of my way to watch. So maybe like I know he's he was reassessing the whole Bogdanovich seventies auteur things. They look they kind of took a look at him and he famously didn't want any kind of he dismissed it. He's just a filmmaker. He's just you know yes, give me the tools, I'll do the job kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that's fair enough. But I think he's in a weird way he's kind of fallen out of favor again to a certain degree. Like I think he's still there and still ranked. But I don't. And maybe it's because the Westerns fallen out of favor to a certain degree as well. That that's probably added to it. But like I mean, he's an incredible filmmaker. Like. That's actually something I wanted to ask you guys about, right? Because Ford is is interesting in terms of this list that we discussed because this is a list-based podcast, that wonderful subgenre uh, of two guys talk about a list at, at great length. But the thing about Ford is that Ford was a dominant presence uh, on the list. And I mean, to be clear, Ford is still a dominant presence in what you might term the canon in terms of like film history. Uh, if you look at things like the Sight and Sound uh, 2012 poll, The Searchers was number six in the critics and number 48 in in the director's poll, the BBC's 100 Greatest American Films compiled just six years ago, Stagecoach at 77, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance at 45, and The Searchers at 5. Um, and, you know, countless biographies that we kind of already alluded to. 
But it's interesting that, like, on the 250, he is a director who was massively present uh, in the early days of the list. So of his films, Stagecoach, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, The Grapes of Wrath, The Quiet Man, and The Searchers were all on the list at one point or another um, for significant stretches up until the mid-2000s. And then they all kind of dropped out. And that's fascinating to me because that's a director who at one stage had a fingerprint on the list that was roughly the size of, say, Ingmar Bergman or Akira Kurosawa, Steven Spielberg, Alfred Hitchcock, um, maybe even Kubrick or Nolan, but whose entire body of work has just over time slipped out of the list. Um, and I think, you know, that that's interesting in terms of the, the kind of attrition as compared to why him as opposed to any of the other directors of his stature. And I wanted to kind of throw that open to the group. Do Is there a kind of a slight shift or a kind of a dimming of, of Ford's legacy? Is it just a kind of, is it a result of, as Jay suggested, the kind of the, the genre just falling out of fashion? Is it possibly a, a good thing in terms of like the canon being reassessed and changing? Because I mean, the, the films that you know, Ford's arguably making room for our movies like Ronan and Jay and I have discussed Caper now, which just as we're recording this continues to climb up the list. It is now the 76th best movie of all time, what? which would have been unimaginable, uh, I think, even five years ago on this list. So I want to ask you guys about like Ford's legacy and, and kind of the canon and, and the shifting. Do we think there is an erosion? or is I, I, think he, I think he's his place is secure in that regard. I, I, do, I do think it's a genre thing. I think like I don't think, aside from like Unforgiven, you don't see much talk about westerns made in the last thirty years. Like it, like the it, it comes up every so often when you get a, you ha, now and again you get a handful of westerns released that people go, oh, do you remember they used to make a lot of westerns and so on and so forth, and then it kind of slips away again, and it's never quite had the hold it once had. So I think it, I think of a lot of it's to do with that for me. Um, what about Eva Ronan? Any thoughts on that in terms of kind of Ford's? Um, yeah, I mean, I would I would tend to agree with, with Jason. Um, I think yeah, part of it is sort of the Western falling out of out of, out of favor. I mean, even though you know there there's still quite a few Westerns released, certainly on streaming services. But you know, can anybody remember the last time a Western was released in, you know into the cinema? I mean, I watched um, News of the World recently, the Paul Greengrass film, and it's you know it's a pretty solid, decent Western. I thought you know, but um. It has, you know, it has definitely fallen out of favor as a as a genre, I think. And um, but I think you know, from like you know, the characters sh- will always be up there. You know, it's it's so influential, and it did stuff that you know, and because it did it for the first time, and we've seen it copied numerous times since. People don't realize that you know that John Ford sort of invented that. You know, the you know th- those wonderful vistas, um, you know, Monument Valley, um absolutely gorgeous to look at you know but you know it influenced people like Kurosawa like um Scorsese and you know that sort of generation of filmmakers but I wonder if 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 newer generations just don't you know don't look at that film in the same way yeah I mean like you know you mentioned all the directors there yeah it's notable that the directors who now dominate the list are largely inspired by him Bergman thinks he's the best filmmaker ever lived he's got five films on the list Spielberg has arguably spent a great deal of his career trying to remake Ford movies to the point where like War Horse is framed as a love letter to Ford he has six movies on the list Kurosawa Hitchcock both have six movies on the list um Martin Scorsese has seven uh, and Kubrick also has seven as well so yeah, I think maybe in terms of his effect kind of lingering on. But Ron, anything you want to add to that in terms of kind of um, the legacy of, of Ford? Yeah, I think for me there's probably two aspects that are that are pretty critical to to him maybe slipping away a little bit. There's there's that aspect of genre. The Western is quite insular and 
it's it's almost retro now there's a lot of modern film goers who aren't familiar with it and might almost find it intimidating you know you're if you're growing up um with a particular type of genre you know you learn how to read the iconography of it and somebody coming fresh to a western um it it might be in some way off-putting um but i think also what's what's possibly playing a part in terms of ford is that he um I think he tends to play with old American values of um, family and masculinity, particularly or recurring themes of his. And he he does it in a way which is often quite subtly ironic and can be misread as almost this kind of staunch conservatism. Um, and I think there's there's every possibility that people are, are responding to that in a very different way now. It seems um, if if you read him quite literally, and you can do that in regards to this film and and, and other films like even The Searchers. Um, he he does seem almost reactionary to cultural changes that were going on around the time, um, and that I I think that I I can imagine people seeing Ford films now and being slightly put off by by that um, that old mentality. I mean, it is worth like just to give a bit of context in terms of of his background. Um, Ford was originally a very much a kind of a liberal um, director, liberal kind of um, activist. He was very much a strong supporter of Roosevelt's New Deal program. He traveled to Ireland in 1921 to support um, the Irish in the War of Independence uh, against the Back and Tan. Um, he also, I think, That's in, in, in that, yeah, clearly Ford kind of threw his his weight behind. I mean, it's like I'm going to make yeah, the quiet man. Nicholas the, the informer. The turning point. Yeah. Um, that was, the, I mean, in Irish history class, we have an entire section dedicated to John Ford coming over and then apparently being chased out by the British uh, when the British roughed him up and ordered him to leave the country. Um, but like outside of that, he kind of he, he involved himself. He supported the New Deal. He supported Roosevelt. Um, he helped found the Screen Directors Guild, the SGG. He was vice president of the Motion Picture Democratic Committee. He was involved in the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League. Um, he donated to the, the, an ambulance to the Loyalists in the Spanish Civil War and helped found the Motion Picture Artists Committee to aid Republican Spain. So he was, in the lead up to the Second World War, a very liberal um, individual and particularly known as such in Hollywood. And then... Was he, was he ever um, kind of uh, uh, prematurely anti-fascist? Yes. <laughs> was he <laughs> accused of that? Because you're saying kind of like the kind of anti-fascist league and the um, Spanish Civil War. I'm just kind of like, like what, what you're, you're probably going to get to it, but in, 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 in terms of uh, McCarthyism. Yes. Yes. No, exactly. You kind of, you jumped, you jumped ahead, which is always good because it prevents me from rambling far longer than I need to. But yes, there were some issues in the fifties. He was involved in the, I believe, the MPA, the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, which was John Wayne's kind of right wing think tank. Now, Wayne and Ford both said that Ford's function in that body was to serve as a balancing influence on it. But again, you go back and you look at the way that body acted and the way in which it presented itself and the arguments it made. And you're like, maybe he could have done more balancing going on as well. He issued statements during the whole Hewick hearings where he was like, look, of all the pictures made in Hollywood, there's only one I've seen that ever smacked of communism and followed the party line from end to end. That little number called for whom the bell tolls, that followed the Marxist line right on down. Um, and he kind of like he attacked other directors for glorifying the Spanish loyalists. Uh, many of his biographers arguing that he did that in much the same way that much of Hollywood went along with the, the kind of the blacklist uh, and the Red Scare in order to avoid people kind of pointing at him. I but imagine yes. there's a lot of um, people in Hollywood who who don't um, believe in liberal values or in diversity or inclusion very strongly. 
who who yet will like come out and kind of um, uh, uh, talk about it these days. You know, you know, as 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 in as in like they they'll 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 often go with whatever is the prevailing kind of um, um, uh, political mood. Yeah, I'd agree with that. There's a deep conservatism conservatism within it. I think. Yeah. No, that that's entirely fair. And like to to be fair to Ford, he is a complicated figure. He would have he would have argued for Joseph L. Mankiewicz um to receive kind of credits and to avoid being blacklisted. He argued against the implementation of loyalty oaths uh, within the MPA, for example. Um, all that sort of stuff. Like he he did things that are you know sometimes hard to position. And I mean, when we talk about this film in particular, um, and when we talk about his later career in particular, it, it gets rather complicated and rather interesting because you can arguably see Ford as a complicated man dealing with his complicated legacy. Like to pick an example, we've already mentioned uh, his use of Monument Valley. I think Aoife, um and Jay both mentioned like Monument Valley as a huge part of like what Ford did in terms of like the Western, those wonderful vistas, uh, the iconography, the imagery. When you think of the Old West, you think of that. And Ford notably uh, made a point to involve like the local Native Americans, the Navajo tribe uh, in his films. He would hire them to play roles. He would hire them to actually play Native Americans in those films, which was relatively unheard of at that time. You would just hire a bunch of white extras and paint them. That would be the way that you would do it. But he insisted on hiring them and paying them fair salary. And after he died, um, reporters went to the Navajo Nation, the people with which he'd worked, and you got this, and again, this this thing, this kind of breakdown of his legacy, where it's like, yes, it is very complicated for us. Because on the one hand, he did that. He he hired us, he created employment, he brought money into the community, um, he involved us in the process. But on the other hand, his films also contributed to a stereotyping of Native Americans in pop culture. Um, he also, you know, added the sense of the Native American nation being, ge- you know, generic and kind of, you know, um, basically all the same, homogenous across the board by casting Navajos to play, say, um, Chani, for example, and kind of other tribes. So it is it is a complicated legacy, I think, that Ford has that that, that kind of is, is interesting to grapple with. And I think Ronan's quite right. That's probably a nice segue into talking about this movie in particular. Um, but before we do, just to get us started, Jay, do you remember the first time that you saw it, or or was this always part of your your kind of cultural memory? Um, no, I, I, and uh, when you when you get to my age, Darren, all these films are in the midst of time. Um, so like I I've seen this and various others probably a, a few times back when I started between the age of five and twenty, I guess. Um, a lot of them. Um, so I kind of kind of blur it together a little a little bit, to be honest. So this this was interesting. It's just a fresh revisit because I wouldn't have seen it probably in maybe over twenty years. Okay, so like when you when you watched it, it didn't stand out. Like so, it isn't like as a childhood you you watched it, it as like a bolt of lightning. It's like, I, 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 I I may have it may have annoyed me when I was younger because it was black and white. <laughs> after watching the vistas and all the rest of it, and it was kind of studio sets and lots and uh, kind of thing. I, I suspect that would have bugged me after watching something like The Searchers or something like that. Um, yeah, that 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 kind of they, um, comes across kind of like in my watching as well. Like they they talk about it being the desert, but you don't really get a sense of place. Yeah, um, you barely get a sense of outdoors, which is really interesting. I think it's quite deliberate in a lot of ways, obviously, but it's it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, we might come back to that in a moment. I just want to yeah. ask uh, Aoife, what about yourself? Do you remember the first time that you saw The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance? Um, not exactly. I mean, I was definitely when I was, you know, when I was a kid. Um, I do remember 
you're feeling a grave sense of injustice at, at the plot. I, obviously not gonna, we can expand on that later in the spoiler section. But um, yeah, I remember being annoyed for certain characters at the way the film turned out um, and at the way that the plot went. But that was when I was much, much younger and everything was more, you know, excused upon black and white. Um, and, and Ronan, what about yourself? Do you remember the first time you saw it? I don't specifically remember, but I know it was probably around my my early twenties. I wouldn't have had much connection to westerns in um, in my childhood, um, but it would have been in the context of having studied westerns as part of a, a film course in college. Um, and I do remember the stagecoach and the searchers were used as part of that. So I, I saw it maybe on TV sometime later, and it it was a favorite forward for me around that point because I had a particular interest in in revisionist style westerns, and I see a a pretty clear lineage from from this to something like Unforgiven, which I've always loved. Um, so it 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 did stand out for me at the time as as one of the better of that um that kind of era of westerns. Um, and actually, yeah, let, let, let's talk about this because Jason kind of mentioned it there. The idea of it being in black and white, because this is an interesting film in, in kind of many ways, because you look at the, the Ford movies and obviously a lot of them were in black and white, the ones dating back before the war and stuff like that. But you look at something like the movies that he made around it, particularly the Westerns that he made around it. So we're talking about like the searchers in the mid fifties. We're talking about um, Sergeant Rutledge, which was the movie that he made in 1960, which was in full color as well. It's the only, um, I, I, again, I did some very preliminary research for this, that it consisted of cramming John Ford's late filmography. Uh, But like Sergeant Rutledge is a very interesting film because it's a courtroom drama that like stops intermittently for giant monument Valley uh, set pieces, which (laughs) is something that is, is quite distinct. Um, but it has this kind of sense of outdoors and the sense of color. Uh, movies like uh, The Cheyenne um, Autumn, which is the movie that he followed it with, his last Western, which is about the Trail of Tears, the Cheyenne being kind of marched across the wilderness. Um, that has these huge vistas and this huge color. And in contrast, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is shot in black and white. It is shot, as Jason pointed out, on standing sets. And it kind of stands out. And actually, I want to ask um, any of you guys, I couldn't find anything in my research, um, a definitive answer on this, in terms of why this movie was shot in black and white. Do do any of you guys know or have any yeah, kind of... Yeah, well, I was actually reading, reading up on this, and you know, apparently it was because um, both Wayne and Stuart played... You know, they were both in their fifties at the time, and they were playing much younger men, and it was just easier to film them in black and white to make it look a bit more realistic. And because if if they filmed it in color, they, there's no way they could have passed for much younger men. Yeah, so uh, it's mostly men in their twenties, I think. Yeah, particularly in the flashbacks. And again, like to put this in context, this is 1962. So this is two years after Psycho basically changes the game in terms of like graphic depiction of violence on screen. It is two years after The Apartment becomes the last full black and white movie to win the Best Picture Oscar until The Artist uh, in the 21st century. Schindler's List has a little bit of color in it, so we're not going to count that. Um, it arrives uh, the hang same- on. Where can we should resist? That's black and white it's film. It's got red in it. It's a black. I don't care. It's black and white film. Stop that there. I'll count it if I want it. Fine. <laughs> you can. Okay. It is the last black and white movie for at least 33 it's fine. years. It's fine. We leave it at that. It's fine. Um, sorry. It's a White Stripes movie. Um, They're but, all black and white and red as well. Yeah. It's like a newspaper. It's black and white and red all over. But, Stop that. Yeah. 
But the uh, the thing is that, like, yeah, so this is two years after kind of like Black and White has arguably become kind of passe in terms of Hollywood production. This is the same year as Lawrence of Arabia. This is the year Lawrence of Arabia wins the Best Picture Oscar in terms of, like, what cinema looks like at this moment in time. So this feels very... Like, for the time, for 1962, it feels very old. The sets look like sets. It's very clear that they're shooting indoors, even during some of the sequences set outside. Now, you know, we'll get in the spoilers and we'll talk about some of the locations they actually used and some of the choices they made, which I think are very deliberate ones. But, like, early on, there's a stagecoach robbery that takes place in the desert that is very clearly a studio backlot. Um, I'm sorry, studio set. And it, it, I kind of, like, I find I find that interesting. Like, what do we make of, just very quickly in terms of, like, a, a brief introduction, the movie's kind of aesthetics or, or tone or kind of look and I, I, like I kind of like it. Um, I, I, I think it fits thematically what Ford's going for here. Um, I, I, I think he's, he's done all the vistas he's going to do to a certain degree in the Western, perhaps. And he's, you know, he's been there, done that. And this is, this is almost going back to basics to some degree. Um, and I think, I think... It, the themes of the film and what he's trying to get at, I think it works and it works quite well or he makes it work even if he, it wasn't necessarily his choice to do it that way initially because there is talk of like, the budget was, he was told he was had X amount of money as well so it depends on who you believe and who you read on it. Yeah, I think there's there's a really interesting contrast here with the the kind of general landscape of of the western itself and of um of of Hollywood at the time. So if you look at the kind of films that were coming out and making a big splash around that time, it was these kind of big bi- biblical spectacular yeah. epics. That's yeah. what people wanted to go to the cinema to see. And even Ford the next year um co-directed How the West Was Won, yes. which was this, you know, three-screen spectacular. Um yeah. so he he knew what the people may have wanted to see. But for me, it feels like it's um, it's it's consciously rejecting that, um, and that comes into what we'll talk about in a bit. I'm sure about um, what, how it how it talks about the myth of the West um, and the way that we we mythologize these kinds of characters. But it's also very consciously, I think, in dialogue with Ford's own background. So there's there's an early scene where there's a stagecoach propped up and dusty, and that feels like a very a very kind of self-referential thing. And and the aesthetic kind of rhymes with stagecoach in that sense. Um, so I think he's he's considering his own place within the genre and, and the aesthetic for me, uh, that's that's a large part of it. And Aoife, what about yourself, just in terms of the general aesthetic or, or mood of the film? Yeah, I mean, it feels very much more like um, an interior film. I mean, ob- you, know, you know, the sets are obviously sets, but it, it's, it also felt sort of like film noirish in a bit with, with the use of shadow and light. I thought that yeah. was very interesting. And certainly in the, um, in the, in the central... Um, uh, gunfight you know the use of shadow there was really really well done so it definitely felt much more of an insular film i mean if you like i i had a quick look at you know some scenes from the searchers today as well and you know there's a huge comparison you know 1956 color big vistas you know widescreen absolutely gorgeous to look at and then you go from that to you know what six seven years later and it's just very very enclosed and i think that's psychologically very interesting can I say as well that that um I think there is a contrast in the movie between the kind of present day of the movie and the recollection. Yeah. It feel it feels like the, the the in 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 terms of the landscape. Like we see the train coming in and the the, the train station and it looks more kind of expansive. Yeah, we it's even when, see the street when, of the town looks more like something exactly. from the thirties or something from the forties, yeah. It's so it's appropriate that when he's recollecting it's more interior and um, intimate and it feels kind of like closer because this is a person kind of like um, thinking back and that it's, it's not, it's not a, a, a landscape. It's in focus. Um, 
So that, that it, it kind of made sense in those terms to me. Yeah, and it kind of, like, again, we, we're talking a lot about Ford. It, like, the, the interesting thing about it is that it, it's Jimmy Stewart doing the recollecting. And, like, he's jumping back. He's remembering 30 years prior. So 30 years prior than the 60s would have been, you know, the 30s or the 40s even. And, it like, the look of those reminds me of the films of that era. We're talking about things like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington for Capra, the Philadelphia story. We're talking about um, It's a Wonderful Life has the same kind of stagey quality to it and the same Jimmy Stewart kind of performance energy and stuff is it in the 60s where where they um where when the 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 movie starts they have kind of do we do we do we do we know or do we have to kind of like um oh guess? in terms of chronology is it, is it it's 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 because they the the most of the events of the movie appear to happen during the civil war because they're talking about um uh, uh gettysburg and the injuries well, they're, they're, um, late, late, later in the movie, they're talking about Horace Gre- Greeley. Yeah, and gonna, gonna, go west, young man, go west. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so in terms of when it's set, there's no precise date given. I believe that it's generally set. It's the historian historians generally have it set between 1890, uh, with the flash forward set in say 1910. That seems to be about it. So it would be a couple of years right. after the Civil that War, because um, they do talk about Lincoln as a historical figure. Um, at one point, they, they talk about God rest his soul. Lincoln. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there is a sense in which, like, you have, obviously, uh, Pompey as well. And, and the idea that, you know, he talks about all men. Well, he doesn't talk about how all men are created equal. And you have this tension around Pompey that's very much like, well, technically, he's he's free. But also this society. Well, we'll probably talk about that in the spoiler zone as well. But I, I think the general placing of it is the, the late 19th century. Um, I think it's interesting with the film's title that you can almost get away with no spoiler zones. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, you know, liberty ain't going to get out of this. <laughs> I think the title of that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Like, I don't think you have to worry too much. Turns out it's a camera. One of the yeah. characters just has a camera and that's, that's, <laughs> the, that's the shot there. All right, so before we jump into the spoiler zone, then three questions to get us started. So, uh, Ronan, to kick us off here, do you think The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Yeah, I think I'd probably, I'd probably go, as I said earlier, it, it, for a long time it was my favourite Ford. It probably still is, really. Um, there's there's an aspect of it that I really didn't like on this revisit that I'm Ooh. surprised didn't didn't turn me off last time. But on the whole, um, yeah, I think if you're, if you're going to hold it up as an example of Ford, and as we said, he's got such an important place in American history, and an example of the genre, yeah, I think I'm okay with it being there. Right. And Aoife, what about yourself? Um, yeah, I think so too. Um, you know, if I had to if I was, if someone put a gun to my head and said, you know, choose between the searchers and Liberty Valance, I would probably choose the searchers because I think that's a much more psychologically complex film. But um, I'd be happy enough with Liberty Valance being on the top 250. Yeah. Okay. And Jason, what about yourself? Um, I, do you know what? I don't think so. Um, yeah, we should warn listeners. Jay came into the chat uh, all a bluster, <laughs> talking about his wonderful dinner this evening and how he had opinions about this movie. So I feel I, like we're about to see that payoff. This is not like I'm not. Uh, I like the film. I, I really like it, and like I liked it back in the day when I saw it. But I, it, I, I suppose maybe it, he's done better. Put it that way. I think that he's done better films. And if you're going to talk about, I guess the cinematic representation of, of on a list of such as this. I think there's better films to go to bat for for him, despite it being good. I I, I had some issues with it too, that I'd largely forgotten, um, which again we'll get into. But, but I, yeah, when like I wouldn't I would I wouldn't argue massively if somebody put it on. It's not something I really kind of you know I 
get angry about, but I'd, I'd, I'd probably wouldn't put it on. When you talk about being representative, are we talking like visually? Or are we talking in terms of aesthetic? Because you, no, you just, talk about like representing the West, like Eva's point about the searchers and the searchers kind of. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the searchers is this kind of the standard bearer, I guess, for that kind of thing. And even stagecoaches, I I think is a better film, um, personally. Uh, I think the big listeners cannot see Ronan. Um, <laughs> surprised. Like, I, like I don't want to sound like I, I don't like this because I do like it. Like I I don't want to be too negative about it, but I. I just I, yeah. Listen, have it if you want. I don't. I don't care. Like I, you can have it on the list. It's fine. I like that. It's there Jay, anyway. Jay so it doesn't really matter. The man like. who shot the man who shot Liberty Valance. Um. <laughs> the man behind the man who the man shot Liberty Valance. Um, and Andrew, what about yourself? Do you think that the man who shot Liberty Valance belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Um, I'm not sure. I I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I, I I'd say I probably agree with Eva having seen. Um, the searchers that it might be a better movie but it's been a while since i've seen it um but it it, it, it was definitely a movie that, that like made it kind of like a big impression on me um yeah I'm, I, 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 I wouldn't be sure i wouldn't have a problem with it being on the list and i'm glad that we've kind of had a chance to 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 watch it and we'll, that we'll get to discuss it so kind of agnostic i guess how about yourself darren you're 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 i'm I'd be surprised if you weren't a fan of westerns, which it seems you're not, because you 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 plead that you don't know much about John Ford, yet you have saloon doors in your house. <laughs> yeah, Darren, fess up. I rest my case. Andrew says, banging the uh, the what 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 does he call it? The 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 dongs uh, the dong summoner or whatever it is. But yeah, no. Um, I yeah, this is the thing where I didn't have the experience that I think Aoife and Jay did of having the westerns constantly on TV uh, when I was growing they up. They were constantly on TV, by the way. Oh no, they were. They yeah. absolutely were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and they, they still it's are. Just if you flick through the channels. tuned into them. No, I was watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles like a normal child. Um, no, but how dare you! <laughs> I was also watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, in fairness. I, I was being sold, um, like, feature-length advertisements, like any normal child my age. Um, but no, uh, in an unregulated marketplace. Thank you, Ronald Reagan, um, for that. But no, I, yeah, I don't necessarily... This is the thing where, like, generally speaking, Hollywood studio filmmaking from the kind of, like, the golden age of Hollywood is an era that doesn't necessarily resonate with me. I, I kind of, I've seen many of the classics of the era but I don't connect with them in a way that a lot of cinephiles do. And part of that is the classic Western um, and and some of the John Ford stuff and some of the stuff I would have seen while flicking channels as a kid. I am much more of a, unfortunately, stereotypically um, filmy, bro-y, kind of nonsensy kind of Sergio Leone revisionist Western kind of guy um, because those are the Westerns that I kind of grew up with. So I, I don't necessarily have the same strong connection I do think that there probably should be a John Ford movie on the 250, um, just to represent the massive impact that he has had on global cinema. Um, given that literally all the John Ford movies I have seen all the way through are The Searchers, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, um, Sergeant Rutledge, and Cheyenne Autumn, I think The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance or The Searchers are the clear winners there. And I don't know if I, I'd probably side with Aoife, I'd probably think the searchers probably has the edge if only because it's when i close my eyes and i think of the classic western the imagery that comes to me is more likely to come from that than from this but i i throw my hands up and i say uh, at the mercy of the court and say i i have no idea what i'm talking about here so i defer to the majority um nobody's mentioned uh, true grit that's another john ford isn't it 
No. True Grit's not John Ford now. No. It's, it's a John Wayne. Oh, it's John. I think I just had it in my head. Like, <laughs> like I just put it with... Um, I think it's Martin, somebody that I can remember who it was. Um, okay. Uh, you mean Never the mind. Cohen brothers, right? You clearly mean the Cohen brothers. <laughs> no, he means the superior True Grits, Darren. <laughs> which is the John Wayne, the much superior True I, know, I, I love the idea that we're, it is Henry Hathaway. Henry Hathaway, okay. Um, I do love the idea, by the way, that, yeah, we're going to turn this into the True Grit podcast. Um, talking please, True Please don't. I'll, I'll probably assume that any Western with John Wayne. It's which directed is by like John Ford. A lot of Westerns <laughs> is a John Ford Western. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's a fair <laughs> assumption. Yeah, yeah, statistically, you're you're probably bound to be right in terms of it being uh, remembered. But then, and then, second question. Um, so, Ronan, would this be on your own personal two hundred and fifty, your own two hundred and fifty favorite movies ever made? No, it wouldn't. I think um, there was a time when it might have been for sure, but um, no, not not anymore. Okay, and and you said when you watched it, like it was your favorite um, at the time in college. It was your favorite John Ford. Is that still the case, even with your admitted kind of qualifications we're probably talking about when we get into the spore zone? Yeah, it makes it makes me want to go back and revisit the likes of The Searchers. And I'm sure there are plenty of, of really, really good ones I haven't seen. I've only seen, um, well, I've seen about a dozen of them, maybe. But um, yeah, I, I do still really like it. But um, I, I see room for something else to pivot for me. And, and Aoife, what about yourself? Would this be on your own personal 250? Um... Possibly, maybe. Um, I mean, I think you know, I I would put the searchers above it, um, as, I, as I've said already. Um, it could sneak on there, depending on what else was around at the time, or depending on my mood. Um, I mean, I watched it again today. That's probably about the the second time I've watched it in the space of a couple of months, and yeah, still I really enjoyed it. I was actually moved to tears at the end for some reason today. I don't know why. Maybe maybe that was just my mood. But yeah, it's it's. It could possibly be in there. I would. I wouldn't say no to it. And like we talked about, like John Ford there. Like in terms of like the Western canon, so to speak. Like how how would it rank there? Like uh, how do you feel about like the Leone stuff afterwards, the Eastwood stuff, or, or other? Yeah, kind of... I'm, oh, I'm, I I love Leone. I, I love I love Eastwood stuff as well. So I'm a big 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 fan of those. Um, I think Once Once Upon a Time in the West is an absolute masterpiece. Um, but I'd still put this there because I I like what what it did with the plot. I like its I like its revisionism. I like I like what he's trying to say. I like what he's trying to say about racism in it. Um, and I think it's 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 a really interesting film. It's, and I think that as as Ford's career, you know, developed, I do think he he did try to. You know, he changed as I think as society changed, he changed. So if you look at something like Cheyenne Autumn, where um, it's very much, you know, one, it's one of the few Westerns that is on the side of Native Americans, you know, and I think that's really interesting. So I think Ford did change a lot over the course of his career, but he's had a very, very long career. Yeah, um, actually, that's, yeah, it's probably worth mentioning that now, actually, because he did bring that in. I think, like, somebody jokingly, and I wish I could cite them because uh, I don't have the details on, somebody jokingly referred to the man who shot Liberty Valance arriving in the middle of the John Ford apology trilogy. Uh, which is John Ford, towards the end of his career, made three movies that were largely about groups that had been marginalized within the Studio Western, and not just by Ford, by like the mere existence of the Studio Western as a genre um, over the preceding 40 or 50 years. So, you know, you had uh, Sergeant Rutledge, which is the story of an African-American soldier during the Civil War who is accused of rape and murder. 
And it becomes this meditation on African-American soldiers who kind of gave their lives and fought for the Union and were still treated as second-class citizens um, despite that, and very much foregrounds. It also stars uh, Woody Strode, who appears here as Pompey. Um, Now, you know, obviously there are limitations in how much you could do in the context of a movie released in 1960, but it was released two years before To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, to give a sense of scale, so that was the, that was one the first one of them. You mentioned Cheyenne Autumn, uh, which is very much about the the Native Americans being marched um, off the reservation, you know, away from their lands and being dispossessed by the American soldiers, uh, and very much like again. Um, Ford famously, and again, not to get too sidetracked, but uh, when he did Cheyenne Autumn, he wanted to actually like. He wanted no white actors in the cast whatsoever. He wanted to cast entirely unknown Native Americans. And the studio told him exactly how much money they would give him if they did that. And he was like, okay, fine, I will compromise. But it was very much a... They wouldn't do that these days. <laughs> Seemingly Johnny Depp was like an eight Cherokee. Yeah. Um, it's much, much more acceptable. I believe that is the case, isn't it? With the, yes, that was the argument with the Lone Ranger. Was It was like he had wanted to play Johnny Depp, and not to turn this into the Depp cast, um, but he had wanted to play that role since he was a child. He had like three roles that he had always wanted to play. He wanted to do Stranger Things, he wanted to do Toto from the Lone Ranger, and he wanted to do Mordecai. Um, those were like Johnny Depp's, I have like blank checks, I can do whatever I want. Those are the three roles I want to do. Um, and then the to bring it back to, to John Ford... The third leg of the uh, so-called apology tour was his last film, Seven Women, which is is set in China, arguably uh, a Western, at least in terms of theme and content, but is very much, it stars a young Anne Bancroft. Um, and it's very much, again, centers women uh, in the narrative in a way that they historically weren't uh, in the films that he made. So I think Eva's entirely right when she makes the point that, yeah, you look at Ford's later career and you can see him you know, grappling at least in some ways with, with kind of the legacy. And I think that's maybe what this movie is doing, not to preempt the discussion we're about to have. But Jay, what about yourself? Do you, like, would this be on your own personal 250? Your own it wouldn't, it's not a chance. Um, <laughs> like, it's not even the best Lee Marvin Western, like. I mean, Paint Your Wagon is a classic. No, 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 no. <laughs> Monty Walsh. Uh, if anybody is looking for a recommendation. I love, by the way, you, you took that as a serious argument. Oh, I do. Yeah, no, I do take a serious argument. So no messing around when it comes to Western. No, it wouldn't be on my list. Um, I, I do enjoy it. I do like it. I It's one of those things I, I, I nearly have to go back and watch more forward to get a fuller answer for it in some ways because taking, just plucking a film out of, con, out of, out of a filmography is not quite uh, the easiest way to kind of digest a filmmaker in that regard. But no, it, it, it wouldn't be on my list. It would definitely not. Okay, so like if you can watch two John Ford movies a week, we can come back in like a year and a half and like we can we can talk about it. No, you know we'll do it. <laughs> Actually, there's a pitch. Um, stop pitching oh. me things that to make me suffer, Darren. Stop it. In 40X. Yeah, Jason, of experience. I like the way Stop that, Andrew. Stop that at once. All right, and Andrew, what about yourself? Would this be on your own personal 250? And would you watch it in 40X? I mean, it might have an argument. Um, I, I feel like it was a, um, a sophisticated movie, entertaining. Maybe kind of, it, it, you, you, you could argue that maybe it's kind of um, old-fashioned in ways that aren't kind of like uh, to its credit, just in terms of like some of the, the um, acting performances and that. But I, 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 I enjoyed its kind of uh, treatment of the themes. Um, that we'll like we'll talk about a little bit later on. Um, it didn't make me cry, uh, and 
It's, I mean, I mean, it, 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 it might, but it, it's not. It's, it certainly wouldn't be a shoe in or anything like that. But it, it, it might be on the margins. How about yourself, Darren? Was it? Was this your first time? This time watching it? Yeah. So the, the, it was indeed the yeah. last this three times what... you watched it in, 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 in the last day or so. <laughs> Um, yeah, I've 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 absorbed it. Yeah. First, second. That was third. that was my very intense acclimatizing myself to the man who shot Liberty Valance. But yeah, this was my first time watching it, which is why I, I kind of, to be fair, stacked the the panel for this with with the people that we have. Um, but yeah, no, I probably not. I'm glad I watched it. I thought it was very good. Um, I'm really glad that we're going to get to discuss it, as Andrew said. But probably not on my own personal list. All right then. So uh, before we jump in, uh, Ronan, if listeners have not watched *The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance*, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? Absolutely, yes. No qualification or hesitation whatsoever. I like it. Eva, what about yourself? Would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream uh, it or watch it? Yeah, I'm going to follow Ronan's go, Yep, absolutely. No qualifications. <laughs> Do it. Um, and Jay. Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> do what you want to do people uh, alright um, I'm okay with it it's fine I, lo- I love the idea that yeah Jay won't stop you from streaming it if you choose that I won't I, but I might judge you oh oh no, I I'm, I'm kidding, kidding, kidding okay alright um, Darren makes a note of who he's going to ask first when we get into the spoiler zone um, and Andrew what about yourself um, yeah I would I would I I, I um I found this fun. There, there's, um, like I said, there's, there's, there's a lot of great satire as well. Like there's some really cynical lines um, that um, that play played very well. So um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend people people watch it. It's a good movie. It's not especially long. It's like two hours. It's just a hair under, I think. Yeah. 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 Perfect. All right. All right then, uh, and I will, uh, I will fourth that positive like strong recommendation and i guess second the qualified recommendation so yeah that's like six recommendations all in all i say go for it yep give it a watch with that in mind then we will segue neatly the, the, the into the voting is closed <laughs> <laughs> if you do call you will be charged <laughs> spoiler zone okay so jay since you announced that you have opinions we're gonna go with you first what is the man who shot Liberty Valance about for you? Um, I, I guess it's a couple of things. It's kind of the, um, it's Ford kind of taking the temperature of the country he lives in and where 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 it is at that particular point. It's about kind of that kind of civil ethics, that kind of building of statehoods and nationhoods and stuff like that. Um, and then it's also about Ford looking back at his own kind of legacy and his films. And his, his kind of his place and what he said and whether he was right and what he said in the previous films he made. Um and reckoning with his own statements and reckoning with his own career and reckoning with the country he he helped shape, I guess, through cinema. Um and partly because I know World War Two stuff as well, like he yeah. filmed documentaries and all the rest of it. So he's been out he's at this a long time when he got to this point. Um and it's you know, it's not coincidental that there's only a handful of movies after this is the kind of the, the autumnal sprint I guess towards the end we're at here where filmmakers kind of tend to take stock of other like I wouldn't go as far as say it's his The Irishman but it's you know it's a certain 
It's his version of the movie that Clint Eastwood has been making for the past 30 years. Basically. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's, he's certainly looking at something. And I, and like I, I, Rowan mentioned earlier, um, it, the kind of link from this, say, Unforgiven. And I think I could go, you can even go a little bit further in the sense that you can see the seeds of the late 60s Westerns here. The, the, yeah. your, your, uh, my, my own personal favorite, The Wild Bunch. And he said, like, it's it's weirdly savagely violent, even if it's kind of off screen slightly. Like it's it surprised me today when I was watching it that it's actually pretty full on when it when it when it lets go and things like, that. like so you can see the kind of seeds of that kind of amorality, I guess for once better word, that they kind of snuck into Westerns in the kind of from the mid sixties onwards and you're kind of from Bonnie and Clyde era kind of uh, territory. And like you can see that here. Ford is probably reckoning and looking at a different world. And when he started making westerns, yeah, and I think a lot of that's there. A lot of it's on screen. It's, it's interesting to kind of mention of a, ci- a civics lesson because it seems like a very kind of jaundiced civics lesson where 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 it's 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 kind of like okay, let me let me tell you kind of like what 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 things are like. Like it's 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 interesting casting of Jimmy Stewart. Yes, yes, it's a very it's oh yeah, very, yeah. The, the 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 kind of. Um, Ransom Stoddard goes to Washington is is a very different movie. Yeah, yeah. Because there, there's 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 a whole sense that like he is this kind of naive sort of Olympian man, and that um, even in his hands, like democracy is a kind of a charade. Yeah. And 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 that's um, you have uh, 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 liberty, um, uh, Valance. Um, it's actually quite kind of like um, learned and understands democracy better than most, um, and is like is trying to kind of like be part of the process himself and his cronies. Um, so it's it's an interesting kind of uh, a, a it's it's not it's not a naive look at um, at their republic, I guess. No, I don't think it is. I think, like, what it did remind me of, actually, weirdly enough, at certain points, uh, and I made note of it today, it actually quite reminded me of Deadwood. Uh, at certain, I had points here where that kind of, uh, you know, you know, once you get to, you know, countries and they're looking at you and the, at the end of the open range, you know, we're going to have laws and every damn thing here soon, you know, that kind of, you know, that the Wild West is over. Just nobody told everyone yet. Civilization comes through trains and books. Civilization is on you see it with the train coming in and all and the, the rest books, of like the, the emphasis on reading and because you have and the books, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to be able to read and write in order to tell stories. Yeah, like the the, the, the the days of the West and the frontier are over. When she says And Ford no Ford knows it. When when they're talking about the cactus rose earlier on, she's talking about how kind of like they're gonna dam the rivers and there, there, there'll be lots of water and all sorts of flowers will grow and yeah. it's, a, it's a kind of like a metaphor for everything that's coming. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the growth should, of society. Yeah. yeah, we should mention by the way, like you mentioned, like Sam Peckinpah and kind of the hint of the stuff that was coming down the line. It's worth noting that like this was 1962, the same year as Ride the High Country, which was one of his early kind yeah. of westerns as well. So there is a sense of that kind of existing on the cusp. And to what Andrew said about the use of of Jimmy Stewart, which I find fascinating, is that like. 
you look at Stewart's career and there are arguably like two Jimmy Stewart's. There's the pre-war Jimmy Stewart. Uh, and I mean, you could arguably fold in, you know, the movie made shortly afterwards. Like, I think It's a Wonderful Life is 1946. Um, but you have like, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington and you have the Philadelphia story and you have Mr. S- and you have um, It's a Wonderful Life where he's this embodiment of decency and virtue and goodness and wholesomeness. And then you have like after the Second World War, you have to say his work with Hitchcock in say Vertigo and Rear Window, yeah. where he's very much like that but rotten and decayed and kind of I, creepy i nearly argue this, that it's a wonderful life is the bridging film yeah. for that because it's kind of a bit of a foot in both uh, camps yeah in and a lot I of ways this is very similar to that as well where like he's in the present he's presented as this kind of like cynical political operator like he's very much meant to be joseph kennedy which is something i want to put a pin in and come back to um but like oh. you, you you didn't get that no Oh, other than Joe Kennedy smuggling booze, I'd never really read or cared about anything he did, like, to be quite honest with you. Ambassador to the, the Court of St. James. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought because they have senators in America that have whole careers for 50 years, so there's a, there's a rake of them uh, that do this kind of stuff. Perhaps you're right, but it, 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 uh, Joe Kennedy Sr. Um, yeah, that, that, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no that, that's... Like, but again, it's in, in 1962. Okay, we'll, we'll, yeah, come, we'll come back. We'll come back to this. I want. I, I want to come back to that in particular. But like, in terms of Jimmy Stewart, like this idea of him seeming like a political operator at the start, and then as you kind of he flashes back and he he seems on the outside like one of his kind of 30s or 40s characters where he's like monologuing about the importance of civilization of law and order and value and virtue and civics and reading and all this kind of important stuff to people who aren't listening to him but then you have like the the central ambiguity of the movie which is like is is he right is is his victory a, a good thing in the end um and so you get this kind of like you know ford reflecting on himself as we pointed out with the stagecoach metaphor but also like even using jimmy stewart to kind of reflect back on that aspect of of kind of american cinema cinema but what about yourself uh ronan in terms of kind of that that portrayal or that aspect of the movie kind of looking back over ford's career looking back kind of as an autumnal film uh, particularly as somebody who you know you, you've talked about how much you love unforgiven and that sort of stuff yeah i think um there's there's a lot the film is trying to do here but for me there's nothing as fascinating as that kind of central dynamic and actually it's 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 not even a dynamic there's there's kind of a trio of male personalities at the heart of the film liberty valance himself plays a really important part um i think the what ford does brilliantly here is brings the personas of his two leading men right into the heart of the film so it's exactly as you mentioned you know jimmy stewart very much would have been seen um as kind of the you know he was the tom hanks of his day he was you know america's dad this kind of uh, this kind of all-american persona and it's ford uses him to position america as it likes to think of itself um but what you really get is um wayne and one of his more almost pathetic performances at times he's, he's still a figure of towering strength but he's you know he's slopping around drunk at various points he can't get the girl um that that's more what the what the nation actually is and i think ford had a really good understanding of um you know america was such a young nation that um it's always said that the western is the only truly all-american genre um and that that's how the the self-image was made in the cinema i think um, he, so i think he uses of, wayne very well here yes. actually yeah. um because wayne is you know you, you can he's such baggage and such history in particularly in genre and particularly in westerns that you can almost play against type with that you can you, there's so much to play with it when it gets to like 1962 and, he, and particularly with his work with ford 
uh, which obviously people will remember in that regard. But yeah, I'd, I'd really like what Wayne's doing here. And I, I would be Wayne's biggest fan. Although you can't, you can't dismiss you can't him. He's a giant. Him. Like he's, he's Wayne. Like, and my dad's favourite actor uh, ever. So take from that what you want. <laughs> I've always felt a Wayne performance. Is, it's all about what's wrapped around him. I don't yeah. think he's a particularly good actor. Yeah, I'd, right. I'd agree. He's limited, certainly. Yeah, it's, it's the way you position him within a frame and what you get to happen around him that does a lot. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on between his kind of, at this time, it would have seemed even a bit of an old hat version yeah. of masculinity. Yeah. And then there's the almost laughing finger pointing at Jimmy Stewart, you know, when he's wearing an apron. Yes. Um, Liberty Valance says, oh, look at the new waitress. There's, there's this interesting way it starts to play with gender. And it kind of ridicules that. It's like this is a really old fashioned way to look at things. Um, but it also kind of holds it up in, in some respect. I think... There's, there's a lot of room for interpretation, as you say, Darren, about um, who wins out, who's, who, whose vision of the way society works is, is actually held up in the end. Yeah, and, and, and I, don't, I don't think I would go kind of maybe as far as you were kind of suggesting, although I don't think it's necessarily your position, Darren, but that, that it wasn't, that the idea of the movie wasn't, is, is that it wasn't worth it. I think the, the, the movie in some sense believes in... Um, what Stoddard is saying, but is also saying it's it's actually a lot messier than 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 that. Yeah. Um. Kind of that 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 there are these kind of um, uh, values and important institutions, but how 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 they kind of spread isn't as 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 pure as the driven snow, I guess. And I think you get um, Ford's kind of a look at like he's staring down the barrel of the sixties now as an old yes. man. And I think, you know, the 60s in America, as we all know, was a, a kind of tumultuous decade. And, like, you can imagine, like, the Kennedy assassination frightening Pilgrim. him a year later um, after this film, which is interesting in that regard. Yeah, I mean, this is another conspiratorial film in which an assassination of a key figure turns into yeah. a vast conspiracy theory. Not to jump too far ahead and to kind of it get was the them. second gunman. Yeah, <laughs> there literally was a second gunman. From the grassy knoll. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, but like to, to bring it back to because I do want to talk about the 60s as of it in a second but to bring it back to like the John Wayne stuff which is fascinating because obviously like Ford and Wayne are arguably kind of inseparable from one another like to the point where as Andrew said he just assumed True Grit was a was a John Ford movie because it had John Wayne in it because they are that intertwined in public consciousness um, I'm not I'm not mocking Andrew like Andrew kind of looked at me as if to say Darren don't you don't you start um, I was not if you're going but, to mock like, me the, for the, anything like mock me on my my like knowledge of movies that's fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair game. Um, but like, like they've been working together since the 1920s. Wayne was, I think, 15 years younger than Ford. They had kind of this weird dysfunctional father-son relationship where Wayne would always call Ford like Pappy or Coach. Um, but on the other hand, you had this kind of dynamic where like um, Ford never seemed to have a nice word to say about working with Wayne throughout his career, um, where like he would, you know, while filming Stagecoach, which was Wayne's big break, he'd be like, you know, why are you moving your mouth so much? Don't you know you can't act with your mouth in pictures, he says. And he would complain about the way in which Wayne moved, saying, why can't you walk? You always seem to dance. And here you have this, like, this At was a like, famously... you didn't say that you were walking like John Wayne either. Um, <laughs> no, no, would, you didn't. Would, wouldn't have I'd... had that kind of, like, reference, yeah. A cachet, um, but like, like famously, the man who shot Liberty Valance was a very troublesome shoot. I think Lee Van Cleef, who has a small role as one of God the bless him. 
Yeah, like, and, and it's clearly wearing an Aaron sweater under his shirt, which I really <laughs> admire. But like he was asked, do you have any nice memories of working with John Ford and John Wayne on um, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance? And his response was just no. Like there's no elaboration whatsoever. No. Um, but like you had like reports that, you know, uh, Ford would berate Wayne during the shoot. He would point to Jimmy Stewart and say, that man is a hero. He went and he served overseas during the Second World War where you stayed at home and made money. He would have things like he would say, look. He's not wrong. He, no, he's he's not wrong. He'd also have like uh, Woody Strode, who was like an actor who, you know, was was one of Ford's favorite actors at this stage of his career, appearing in things like we mentioned Sergeant Rutledge, uh, we mentioned Seven Women. But he'd be like, yeah, look, he's, he's able to like, he's able to carry you on his back back during these scenes and you can't even get a single staging right what is wrong with you there's a point where apparently like um at one stage wayne struck strode on set and ford jumped in to say what uh, would he don't hit him back because we need him to continue to be able to act if you hit him he's not going to be able to continue to perform and you had this whole terrible dynamic like wayne suggested at one point that ford forgot he was there while they were making the movie and it's kind of interesting that the two of them are so interlinked, but the relationship between the two of them is so antagonistic. And I think it's kind of interesting how that plays into the movie, because like how the movie treats John Wayne and, and Tom um, as a character. Like, what, what do we make that? So Aoife, like in terms of like its presentation, as we mentioned, of the kind of three men uh, in its central focus, like what do we think of its portrayal of, of kind of like uh, Stoddard, but also of Tom even? Yeah, um, I think it's really interesting. I mean, obviously, it's a film about, um, you know, the the Old West versus the New West. You know, we have John Wayne representing the Old West. We have Jimmy Stewart representing the New West, sort of civilization, as you said. You know, the the man of letters, the man of books. But it's also interesting that, you know, know, Tom Donovan, the character that Wayne plays, um, can read. You know, reading is is a theme in this book. Also, Liberty Valance can read. You know, so I think that's really, really interesting. I'm, I'm not sure what Ford is trying to say with that. Um, and with the fact that, you know, that, you know, liberty is, you know, it means freedom. So, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not sure which side Ford is coming down on. You know, does he, you know, because Jimmy Stewart's career in, in the film is based entirely on a lie. You know, the man who shot liberty violence um, and his entire political career is based on something that he didn't do. And he knowingly didn't do, yet he still is happy enough to live on the spoils of that. And he gets the girl at the end, you know, in the film. So I think it's really interesting. So I think, you know, the first time we see, well, not that we see Tom Donovan, but the first time we're aware of him is is when we see his coffin. And it's obviously just a pauper's coffin. So the, you know, the guy who is... He know, doesn't even have his boots and he doesn't have his yeah, gun he belt. He hasn't worn a gun belt like for the, years. Yeah, the guy who's technically the hero of the film is just a nobody and he's about to be buried buried in a pauper's grave you know so i think it's it's really really interesting i think um i think that's why i think there's a lot of depth to this film that that the more the more you watch it that the, the more you're going to catch i think and um and yeah i was just fascinated by the um you know the reading theme in the film that you know outside of the three main characters and obviously the uh, the newspaper editor wonderfully played by um edmund what's his name edmund o'brien <laughs> Edmund O'Brien, and you know, um, nobody else can read. You know, so I think that's that that's really interesting too. And also the fact that um, one of the things I do love about the film is the number of 
of uh, minor characters. It's such a great, you know, great actors in there. Like, oh, it's oh, so, such a deep bench. Like, uh, oh, it's just brilliant. You know, um, you know, Strother Martin and Woody Strode. John Carradine was great at the end as well. Um, you know, the you know that sort of stock company that that followed forward around. I think that's you know, I think that adds a lot of depth to this film as well. So I think it's it's the more I see it and the more I watch it, the more interesting it becomes. I think there's a lot going on in this film. I think that to, to, mention, to bring it back to the reading theme that you mentioned, which I find fascinating because it is it is very much a recurring motif uh, in the film. And I think it's very much about like the writing and the reading of history. And it's notable that the film begins and ends with characters tearing out pages from a book, crumpling them up and throwing them away. So that is how you're introduced to Liberty Valance with the law books. He reaches in and he tears pages out and he crumples them away. And you have at the end, you have the sequence where they take the story that's just been told about who really shot Liberty Valance. And it's it's taken up and it's torn away. And you have the famous line, which is, you know, when legend becomes fact, print the legend. And you have this idea of necessary lies and the idea that, you know, society is... And again, it's it's a really cynical perspective and, and I think speaks to what Jay said about arriving in America in the early 60s, sensing something changing in culture, but also kind of like reflecting and looking backwards. Um, because like this very much looks and feels like a classic Western, like the way in which it uses sets, the way in which it's shot kind of on sets, the way in which it doesn't necessarily look like it's real. I think like there are points where Liberty Valance himself looks like a rodeo cowboy with his whip. He looks like a kind of like a character from a 30s film he looks like Sammy Sam in uh, the kind of Looney Tunes it's uh, you know that kind of uh, high energy uh, and and like you have that that kind of juxtaposed with like the sequence later on where they go to Capital City and like you've been watching throughout this movie horses galloping up and down inside sets like there are moments when the, the horses are going by outside the saloon and you're watching the matte painting in the background go up and down with the hoofbeats and then at the end Ford kind of draws your attention to it by like having a horse ride around inside a building in the convention centre doing like lasso tricks as like a, a party favour for the is it Levinson Dickinson whoever it is the the, the other candidate um, and you have this yeah, idea the Citizen Kane moment <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's it exactly but it's the moment that's very much like, yeah, this is pageantry. This is this is the myth that we have built. This is all fake and and, kind and it's of all like, based on nothing. Like it's it's all a lie. Yeah, it, it's just this paper mache mate painting kind of mythology we've created. Uh, sorry, Andrew. Did I... No, no, I was I was going to say something stupid. I was going to say kind of how Yosemite Sam's kind of like late career, he traded on that kind of perception <laughs> of himself and they kind of more. It kind of quieter <laughs> roles and things where where it was kind of inverting the audience's expectations of. I think I think Yosemite and Sam always felt kind of pigeonholed. I think by well, I think yeah. even what you're saying, Darren, um, in terms of speaking, I think also you can add to that that Ford's this is Ford's last chance to play in a particular sandbox, which is the studio set kind of western that the kind of thing he he was reared on, I guess for want of a better word, that he can do all the the old tricks that he would have done. For whole career, this is the last chance saloon, I guess, if you pardon the pun, um, that he could he could do it, and he and he's he's doing. I guess he's kind of saying like, you know, this is how we used to do it back in the day a little bit as well. That you know, I can I can do the the old the, with the vistas. I can also do this. I can do a bit of everything. 
Yeah, because I, I want to talk about this because, like, we immediately, like, one of the things we glommed on even before we got to the spore zone was the extent to which this is, like, shot like a 30s or kind of 40s movie with sets and stuff. And we noticed that there are very few locations that are used. He doesn't go to Monument Valley or whatever. And even, like, Stagecoach, which was in black and white, had lots of location work in it and stuff like that. Um, Fort Apache. All those movies had, like, wonderful vistas. And this doesn't, with one notable exception, which I find fascinating. The only point at which it really feels like the movie goes outside into the wilderness, into a John Ford location, uh, is the moment where they go out to um, Tom's ranch, Tom Donovan's ranch. Like, that is a real location. That's not a standing studio set. You can see the mountains in the background. You can see the camera kind of lingering over. That is the real West. And I wonder if he is saying something there. Like, for all... That John movie. Wayne gets to have yes. the real West, doesn't he? That's it. Because exactly. it's John That's Wayne, like he owns the West, of, like yeah. Yeah, in terms of like like the ambiguity of the movie, that like is he suggesting that Tom is the real West and he got kind of painted over and papered over? Is that fair to say, or is it more ambiguous? Is it more ambivalent towards him, reflecting the way in which you know Ford's relationship with Wayne could be push and pull? Ronan, what do we what do we think in terms of of that? In terms of like the presentation of Tom or the real yeah. West, so to speak. I think in that sense, it probably chimes with the say the ending of the searchers, you know, when he steps out into that world and he's very much isolated in it. Um, this this being, you know, what six seven years on from that, um, it it may always it may almost be using that kind of that aspect of his character. You know, Ford's kind of constantly added stuff to Wayne as he went, and then picked it up in later films. Um, you know, I, I think there's there's a lot of them are in dialogue with each other. So I um I think I. I don't know how much um, the the use of a location is doing that. You know, I think we we, we don't really understand um, the the budget aspect, Fair. how much they played into it, same as the black and white. But it is interesting to consider in that sense. I like the kind of parallel theme um, to as well of 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 longing for um, one's home, um, where one is from, that it did, and how like kind of how the town has changed. Because it, it kind of fits very well with this idea of kind of looking back at the past. Kind of, of, you mean of, when he suggests he wants to retire there? Like when he yeah. says, like, would you mind if after I'm done, if we go back to... Because it's a place that represents a time. Um, yeah. Yeah, I want to actually mention this because I think like the, it's notable that like the presentation of, of like Shinbone looks like it looks like a studio set. It looks like a memory of kind of like what the old West looked like that never actually existed. It's, you know, make uh, the West great again kind of aesthetic going on there as well. But you have this this observation. I think Ebert made the point in his review that Shinbone is the only Western town he has ever seen in a movie with no prostitutes in it. Um it's notable that the film doesn't... Are certain there's no prostitutes? I, well, he, like, again, he makes the point that, like, in most Westerns, it's the, the tavern that we see where everybody's going wild and going shouting, but the heart of Shinbone is this small family-run diner run by these decent Swedish uh, kind of immigrant family, and it feels very, you know, middle-aged and very reflective and very, like, oh, it was, it was you know, a more innocent time. Uh, it was more like, like kind of looking were, back... I feel like there were some prostitutes. In, in Shinbone, like and and that they're on the, the like possibly on screen. Now I don't I don't I don't want to kind of defame anyone, um, like hypothetically. But no, I I didn't get the sense that it like any um that that it wasn't. Plus there was the kind of saloon like that we see. Um, yeah, I don't. We don't sorry, sorry. I I just thought that was a weird comment. Um, <laughs> what well, no, again? I, maybe my insistence I was that there were 
whores. <laughs> is is or that there are that there were prostitutes is is a, is an even weirder comment. Um, what? Okay, but I I think there is something very wholesome then about how Shinbone is portrayed, which is interesting. Like in terms of like it like at once the West is wild and untamed, but it's also somehow like more romantic and more idealized, particularly when compared to the world of politics in which you know Stoddard's gone out and found himself, which I find kind of interesting as well. It's this idea of a, a nostalgic past that maybe never actually existed because we have to build it on studio sets and backlots. Um, I find something very interesting in in kind of that tension um, there. there. There are aspects of it that are almost kind of cutesy in a way, you know, the the dopey Marshall asking for a second sha- uh, second steak, these kind of, you know, comedy bits that they really add a great texture to them. I, I, I oddly found them quite jarring at points, though. Mm. Um, but, you know, but I'm also very used to, if you've watched enough Westerns, there's always a cute or, a, you know, a, Comic he's usually, he's, he's, yeah, he's usually making, you know, coffins and like that in films like that you know what I mean sitting with no teeth in the corner laughing at everything like I love those characters like so you know, you'd accept it because that's what it is also there's a fantastic moment just after Liberty Valance is shot where they call over the doctor he calls for some whiskey down yes. just kicks him and says dead yeah. <laughs> um, I mean I, like there are lots of little moments that I love here as well like Lee Van like after the moment where Valance is kind of scared out of the um, out of the restaurant and he backs away Lee Van Cleef like backs away slowly grabs the whiskey and then continues on his way which I quite like um, not to jump ahead in terms of food waste that's a rescue flies from my red wine sorry oh no Belgrade <laughs> Uh, anyway. But uh, Ronan, like you mentioned there, there was something that gave you reservations this time watching. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, think um, we, I think we have similar reservations, actually. Oh, yeah. okay. I'm, I'm shocked I didn't remember it from the last time I watched it, even though it was The Bones 10 years ago. Um, the last 20 minutes are just, my God, they just throw the pace of it totally off. After after Valance, uh, Valance has been shot, is it? Yeah. The actual when, ending when... of the film. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah. Let's go for another 35 minutes for... I think it's it's probably Spielberg really important. Something Spielberg learned from Ford. Sorry, it's 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 really important thematically for them to to you know finish out the story in terms of what it's what it's speaking to about um, you know the legend of the West, uh, but it it felt really clumsily done to me in watching it this time. You know the and maybe it goes to what you said, Aaron, about the whole pageantry of it and the horse being on the stage. That whole scene felt endless. <laughs> I know. I, I was nearly I was nearly on the floor. I was like, just end. You could have wrapped this up in five minutes. That's come on. I, I kind of like that in the idea of like being trapped inside. Like as like I, again, I don't maybe, like the idea of being trapped inside anything, Darren. And this this after, this after this, the, this, after this year me. and a half. But like no, I mean yeah. I mean this is probably me being the cynical kid who didn't like these old fashioned westerns. But like watching that sequence was like oh I remember being six years old and my granddad sticking these on telly. This is what this felt like. This is the St. Patrick's Day parade. Yes. Uh, dialed up to um, things like, no, 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 no. I, I read that as Ford's cynicism with politics. You know, the um, the guy who comes out and you know plants a badge on Jimmy Stewart. And, you know, that's all, all of that is just, you know, that's that's politics. And, you know, and I guess the, um, you know, the, the reveal that you know Jimmy Stewart's entire political career is built on a lie—it's—it's—it's it's, it's also Ford saying something about politics. So I oh, think, yeah. while while those scenes are long and and a little bit turgid, I think they're necessary as well, just to. Um, no, you're probably correct. I, I just I just I felt it, and and I didn't <laughs> feel it earlier on at any point. If you know what I mean, that that was a different thing. I think they're necessary, but it could have been more interesting, maybe. I'm probably being a bit harsh. I don't, I don't mean I, to be, but I, it... I enjoyed that that the, the um that sequence with the um 
the fellow with the ridiculous name. I didn't even write it down. Yeah, but, but the uh, names of the characters were this, amazing. Where, yeah. where he's like, this is no time for oratory. And he crumples up, again, another <laughs> image of you crumpling up a page, and it turns out the page is empty, which is like, it's a great gag. It's a really great gag. Sorry. The, um, the sheriff's name, Link Appleyard. Yeah, Cassius Starbuckle is his name. Of course it is. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> what a great name. but actually yeah to, to mention like you mentioned kind of the political cynicism of this this is the bit where i look at it and i think this is a, a 1960s movie in particular this is a 1962 movie because we're arriving like this is the second year of the kennedy administration and i mean you know again kennedy is is one of those presidents where you have like this extraordinary amount of myth making going on around him like not only have a lot like, Cam- that's that's it exactly you have the creation of like cam- once you know for a brief shining moment there was uh-huh. camelot um and he's like his new frontier rhetoric as well which is about appropriating the imagery of the old west and kind of extrapolating yeah. into outer space and kind of like going no america can like go west young man america can continue to go west young man um into the kind of into the late 20th and into the 21st century and I think it's kind of interesting that this arrives at that exact moment where you have the idea that all of this is built on a lie. All of this is false and fake and it's a mythology. And like one of the interesting parts. No, no. The, 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 the interesting thing as well about the, the, the kind of handholding between like politics and, and journalism and that it's not reporting, you know, that, 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 that um, like there, there's reference made to Horace Greeley. Who, who was the big newspaper man yeah. who ran for president in 1872 against, I think, Grant. Um, and it, fe- it feel, feels like kind of similar to, 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 to Citizen Kane, kind of um, uh, that, that idea about the, um, the message being, um, being crafted and you maybe not... not um, Rather than being reported. Not seeing the world on filter. Yeah, and again, like... You know, it's a theme that I I agree with Aoife that like um, News of the World is not necessarily a great film, but it is something interesting that that film comes back to as well, which is the importance of reporting and kind of myth making and myths. I did I did think what Andrew alluded to with them the, the the political thing with uh with politics and the media and all the rest of it. I think that's what this film when I said earlier reminded me of Deadwood. That's where a lot of that stuff um that intertwining and you know the news prints a particular view depending on who's telling the news to print a particular view um and i think it, it's done very well there and it's done very well here and and again the, the idea that like you had like the kennedy with that man which was already kind of mythologizing itself as well where you had like the story of kennedy's service uh, in the second world war pulling um other kind of you know pulling other soldiers out with his teeth and kind of the service that he'd done and the idea that he was always destined for greatness and, and this kind of stuff that was going on and like i think you could arguably, if you wanted, see the presentation of Stoddard in this as a commentary on that. I think he's he's very much meant to be the way in which like Joseph P. Kennedy, Joe Kennedy Sr. was seen at the time, which was a, a man who was founding a dynasty and founding a legend and kind of taking something that had been disreputable. Um, you know, the famous stories about what exactly Joseph Kennedy was involved in uh, in his early career and life and then channeling that into 
a more reputable uh, version of himself and a narrative that he creates for his family. And like, there's a moment where they say like, you could even be vice president one day, which yeah. feels very much like it's, Oh, you know, like uh, he has, he has his eyes on a higher office than that. And I kind of find it interesting that this is, this is 1962. This is the early sixties. This is before, as Jay mentioned, everything kind of comes off the rail in, you know, in 63 and in the late sixties with Vietnam and stuff like that. But you can see already the cracks and the ambivalence there. And it's fascinating that like, you know, this is a late Ford movie. This is a man who's been making movies since, you know, the teens and he's been making classic Westerns since the thirties. And he's still with it to a certain extent. Like even, even the fact that Lee, Lee Marvin uses the phrase dude, which which feels like, like, dude, like, uh, it is a historically accurate term. It, it Historically, it referred to people who are, dude, like, dandies, yeah. who wear nice suits. Isn't it as well, there's the term um, around kind of cattle ranching. Okay. There's, 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 there's such a thing as a dude ranch, I think. Okay. I would not like to go to the dude ranch. I'm going to be honest <laughs> with you. Uh, it sounds terrible. Today, we just call that Tinder. Um <laughs> The Dude Ranch does sound like a fun place. Does it sound fun? It, it, it doesn't. It, it, yeah. it doesn't. <laughs> we just let them run wild and feral. Um, uh, which uh, sounds like a disaster waiting to happen, to be honest. Um, sorry. Dudes of all sizes. Yeah. Um, sorry. But, like, I, I do... I, I do kind of find that that interesting in terms of, like, the, the, the Lee Marvin repeatedly calling somebody dude. Um, even feels like a marker that we are we're entering a different decade the western is kind of changing slightly things are going to be be a little bit different um in terms of of other stuff in terms of the movie um the presentation of kind of woody strode as pompey is is interesting um and it's something that kind of does get discussed a lot which is this idea of pompey as an african-american man in the setting kind of i think Aoife mentioned the film's treatment of racism and race um would you like to kind of speak to that or kind of delve into that or yeah, I mean, I think it's it definitely touches on on you know on the racism, um, but it's it's it can be quite subtle because it's not it's not overt. I mean, there's a scene where um, you know the, the voting scene yeah. where um, Pompey is seen sitting outside. He's obviously not allowed in, and he's not allowed to vote. And nor are, nor are any women inside either. They're they're not allowed to vote either. Um, and also the scene in the bar where when Pompey walks in and the bartender says, "Sorry, I can't serve you," you know, so. Um, yeah, I think yeah, Ford is definitely pointing out the the racism that that's inherent uh, inherent in you know modern American society and inherent as it was in the, in the West at the time. Well, there's a very pointed moment where they're doing the kind of reciting of the, the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, the, but like where where Woody kind of like he's you have a portrait of Lincoln in the background and he's saying it is the you know, fundamental truth that we hold to be so all and that but, and he can't he can't get people. yeah but he can't get it and nobody else can figure it out either which is a really damning indictment uh, in terms of like looking back at the founding myths of America which is is interesting I think as well that 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 Stoddard says oh yes yeah no you're you're okay a lot of people forget that but yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and kind of the weird relationship that he has with Tom as well, where Tom like immediately sends him away from school and sends him back to work on the ranch and stuff, even though Tom later on makes a point of having him served at the bar. So you have this interesting kind of ambivalent relationship between the two, I think, which is... is... The, the weird thing is, I, I, when the film started, I thought it was Tom Donovan, as in yes. like, you know, Donovan. And then you see the name and the ranch, like, how the f- did he spell that? Well, yeah, well, that's... <laughs> Don, like, Donovan, yeah. Donovan. He is what, the what? most literate man. Um, like, <laughs> yeah it is yeah it is. <laughs> phonetically we're going to give it to you phonetically pal <laughs> but, 
Who's that another, dolphin? Yeah. No, Donovan. Don, Donna Donovan. <laughs> Don, it's bizarre. I was like, what the hell is this? And I love that, yeah, he has it written at his ranch as well in case he forgets how to spell it. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, exactly. Like, yeah. like, as well. Because, like, he, like, it's mentioned that he is literate and he is literate, but he seems to at times struggle, like, when he's reading the Stoddard kind of sign, he takes him a little bit of effort to get there. So I do like the idea that he's written his name on his ranch so that he will always kind of be able to, to spell that there. Uh, but in terms of, of The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, in terms of anything else, anything that we haven't discussed already, anything jumping Yeah, there's a couple of things. Um, one is, I think Eva alluded to earlier, that there's a about kind of a touch of film noir in the film. Like there's a shot where Wayne lights a cigarette in shadow later on in the film, which is astonishingly beautiful and very, very knowing of that kind of uh, studio-bound genre piece kind of thing. And it, and Ford being very aware of that kind of thing, uh, which I really liked. Um, and the other thing I'd mention, and I think it's worth mentioning because these conversations around Westerns tend to spring up every so often. And what seems to be coming to the fore now a little bit, which and I, I think it's a welcome thing, um, particularly for fans of Westerns. There's a lot of talk over the years of the, the revisionist Western and the deconstructed Western and all the rest of it and the, the kind of post-60s kind of eras. Like, yeah. and as, and the, but it's more that films before that tend to be dismissed, which is absolute bollocks because there's a, a ton, and I mean a ton of Westerns made before inverted commas the elevated western which is the revisited western this is the elevate horror argument again this kind of conversation that comes around every so often that you know because you're aware of your surroundings it doesn't automatically make it a better film uh and i think the western because a there's so bloody many of them uh particularly like at a, a kind of 40 year period or 50 year period uh particularly like there's a ton yes. of westerns from the 20s even before that all the way up to the 60s before the revisionism or deconstruction or everyone call it kicks in and it's absolutely worth exploring because there's great great films there yeah no they're absolutely and i mean like this is arguably a revisionist western of it in that it's quite literally about oh it's certainly the seeds it's, of it for sure like it's quite literally a revisionist western in yeah, that yeah. it's about revising the history of the west yeah um for damn sure and this is like a 1962 black and white John Wayne, John Ford Western, which is absolutely fascinating as well. Yeah. Um, uh, what about yourself, Ron? Anything you want to add? Anything we haven't discussed or anything jumping out at you? No, I don't think there's anything left on my list anymore. And, and Aoife? Oh, sorry. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, I was interested to know, that, you know, it's based on a short story by Dorothy M. Johnson. Um, and... I just did a quick Google on her to see who she was because I hadn't I hadn't heard of her and she also wrote the short story for um, a man called Horse which I thought was pretty interesting because that's a that's a right. unique western <laughs> I don't know if anybody has seen that one. No. <laughs> I actually don't think um, I have either. What is a man called Horse? We are in the spoiler zone for all movies, so feel free um, to go. It's for a it. it's a film with um, Richard Harris. Richard Harris, yeah. and um, I've I've only ever seen bits of it because it's. It, it seems like a forerunner for, for torture porn. Some of some of the bits I've seen, like there's a bit where he's um, <laughs> everybody um, on the call just kind of immediately raised their eyebrows. It was something to behold. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, don't absolutely go that boxes. way. Yeah, did not expect uh, yeah, the conversation. There, like there's a scene where I think he's been initiated into an Indian tribe, and part of the initiation rite is where he has to stick um, implements into his nipples, and then. <laughs> and then he are oh, yeah. eight, eight eyebrows raised simultaneously. Um, <laughs> so he's basically he's being sort of half suspended by his nipples, um, and then he has to pull back, 
I let the things rip out his nipples, basically. Um, I think this was made in the 70s, so it's... it's yeah. It's really, that sounds like a 70s film, all right. Yeah. Um, I think it was a sequel called Return of a Man Called Horse, so as far as I can remember. But it's been, a franchise. <laughs> it's got a man still called Horse. All of um, these studios, like, in the 70s, it's like, let's let's make something really unpleasant that's going to put people <laughs> off. <laughs> like, um, it's, yeah, I mean, anyway, to, to me, it's, it's interesting that, that a woman wrote that, because I'm not aware of too many women who, who have written westerns, you know, you know, or or written the stories that westerns are based on. So I think think that's quite interesting. And yeah, you know, I wonder how so. close it is to the story. Just um, I'm now imagining also, John Ford pitching John Wayne. He's like, I have two stories from the same author. Uh, you got to pick one. <laughs> and the poster has somebody suspended in air as well. That's amazing. That's okay. how you sell well, the man who shot Liberty Bell. <laughs> It's like you give it like as an option. The man who shot Libby Balance and a horse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you know, the, the one other sort of question I, I, I sort of have around the film, and I don't think it's it's answered in the film, is, you know, did does Halley know that it was Liberty yeah. Balance? That, that Liberty Balance was shot by, by the John Wayne character? Um, it's not stated explicitly. No. So oh. I, I'm not so sure. I think I think it's implied that she realized over time. Like that that's the thing is that like I think like I really like how that and again it's really odd that the movie opens with like what should be and again I know it's a flashback movie. I know it's structured as a flashback, but you could almost play the movie in linear order and it would work just as well. Like the sequence where they go out and they visit his house. She's like she never finished that room, did he? And that would be the moment where you could cut to black and have the credits yeah. roll as a profound meditation. I like that it's like no, we're going to give you all of this information beforehand. Um and like properly spend time developing this world, but there is this sense that she like she regrets the marriage. Like, it, it seems very clear from very early on that she is, that it is not a particularly loving or warm marriage that they are in together now. But they're kind of, like everybody else, they've bought into the story. And you get the sense of, like, yeah. and again, this is something I find interesting, because Andrew kind of mentioned early on, like, with Stoddard, the thing is, like, the idea that he told the lie and he perpetuated the lie. I think one of the more interesting and ambiguous aspects of the movie is the idea that like, Stoddard isn't the main person invested in this lie. Everybody is. Like, it's not like he's lying for his own gain. It's like everybody has decided that this story is advantageous. So we will continue to tell it. And we will continue to buy into it, even if we've all kind of reached a point where it's more uncomfortable than not. Like, the moment at the end where it's, it's like... It's, we're, it's okay. that idea of um, sort of... Um, I don't know, is it... Is it like not cognitive dissonance, but the 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 idea of um of most kind of like abstract notions being um uh, like like justice and love and for some people God being things that we all kind of like agree um exist like as 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 well as the 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 the, the kind of myth we we that. That, that we do so and that we appeal to these things um, as a way of kind of um, making sense of our world and, and keeping the peace, I guess. Um, 
Well, I mean, there's the the Scott Iman kind of like interviews with with Ford, where Ford kind of like says that it's good for the country to have heroes to look up to, even if they are false ones. And Ford says that the lies are necessary because the important thing is that the greatest good happens for the greatest number. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that's paid off, has it, for America? <laughs> like, I think at this point you could probably say it's probably not the greatest idea. Um, but I think like, that the movie's like that big, yeah, Watchmen. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do think that the, the movie, like, it's to the movie's credit and to Ford's credit that it's ambiguous. Like, you're left, no, I agree. No, I completely agree. Like, you're you're left. Like is Reese is did did Stoddard live his best life as a result of this mythic story? And it really seems like he didn't. Like at the end, all he wants to do is give up the nice, cushy political job that he has and retire to this community and be forgotten. And like it's some weird Twilight Zone ending where they're like, "Oh yeah, you're the man who shot Liberty Valance." Like he will never escape this having praise and myth heaped upon him. Yeah. Like it, it's almost kind of like a karmic thing. Kind of to Jay's point about America, kind of. It, it, America's always been kind of precarious, I guess. Like that, and 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 I, yeah, I, I agree. Kind of myths that 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 maybe kind of um, um, hold hold it together, and that there's a kind of like a thing. Oh, I, I, in, in... I think that's a that's a, a fair point to a point, but I think that uh, not enough people buy that anymore. That you end up with this, and I don't think it's ever going back to the point where everybody's fall into sort of the sense of the country in that way, in my opinion. But we'll see. Time will tell, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like, there's there's Richard Brody, who is a phenomenal writer, I think. I know Jay is a big fan of, of Brody as a writer. I would be, yeah. I disagree with him as much as I agree with him, but oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, no, I, I think that's a sign of a good writer. But, like, he, like he, he makes the argument that Ford prints it and prints the facts behind it uh, and makes a movie about the moral burden of a life lived in the name of a myth and the ethical implications of direct action. Uh, implicitly the subject of the film is also a nation founded in that way so there's the question of yeah like not only you know you have like the kind of meta element of it where like even if you know that this is all nonsense and a lie if as andrew said that lie is important in terms of social cohesion are you obligated to continue the pantomime when you realize that like there's nothing behind the curtain? And I think their their marriage maybe to some extent, what little we see of it is maybe a microcosm of that. Yeah, because it's kind of like uneasy, but and it, it um and there maybe isn't kind of love there, but it's almost like they're doing it for the kids, <laughs> like the kids being <laughs> where so the kid is the country. Uh, yeah, where yeah, the kid are is. Are we like saying she would have been better off at Wayne? Is that what we're saying? <laughs> Um, I don't know. That, uh... Her true love. <laughs> well, I, I find this, like, that's interesting, the thing about Tom, like, because you see how Stoddard's life plays out. You, you, like, you get a lot of exposition about Stoddard. You hear he's this great white hope. He's this embodiment of the American dream. He's this politician who, like, he served, like, three terms in the Senate, like, served as an ambassador and then came back, did another one. He's on his, like, a path to high office. He's passing yeah. infrastructure bills. Like, he's, he's made a big difference in a grand mythic sense. And I love that you get no sense of what happened to Tom. Because it doesn't really matter. Like Tom, very similar to what Ronan suggests at the end of The Searchers, where he just kind of like wanders out into the wilderness and kind of disappears. Nobody knows who he is. Yes. In the town. Yeah. So the, yeah. like, like it, it's it, he has probably just kind of um, um, disappeared into kind of like alcoholism and seclusion. It's that like that line out of Unforgiven. He prospered in dry goods. Mm. But. Um, all right, then, is there anything else we're talking about? Anything that we haven't um, discussed? Just one brief thing. I, I really, really liked Vera Miles in this. Uh, I thought she was terrific. Um, and in the kind of 
where you were mentioning earlier, Aaron, about the kind of the apologist trilogy, I guess, or Ford's kind of the apology tour, trying to make good on stuff that he kind of may have kind of participated in as years ago. But I think Miles gets a great role here, and uh, it is a quote unquote wife role, I guess, for want of a better phrase, in that in the kind of familial film tropes. But I think she acts the hell of it. She's very, very good. That moment where she um, she reveals that she can't read and she does it all all through her physicality before she actually says anything. It's beautiful performance. Yes, it's glorious. It's, it's really good. Yeah. Yeah, I do agree. And that scene where at the start where she pulls up at the burnt down house and the little veil waving in the wind is really poetic. It's really, really lovely, actually. Yeah. Um, we should mention, by the way, actually, there's a really good article at uh, Bright Lights, Dark Wall Films uh, Journal about like the use of gestures and the use of body language uh, in Liberty Valance, where a lot of the acting is done very subtly uh, and a lot of like the repeated gestures and things like that, which are very striking. I would recommend. Are you going to put that in the show notes, aren't you, Darren? What? You're going to put that in the show I notes. I'm going to put that in the show notes. Along alongside with... my, my T-shirt picture. And yes, alongside Jay's um, Jay's answer to the question, who shot Liberty Valance? Listeners can find that tucked away in the show notes as well. Um, what about Aoife, Ronan, anything that you guys want to talk about? Anything we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out at you in terms of um, the man who shot Liberty Valance? Just say it's a, it's a rare pleasure to, to see a film that ends with its own title. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You build up to the line. Because I, I was kind of waiting for it, like, because I had not seen this. So I was waiting for, like, I thought the reveal would be the other way around. I thought it was like, oh, this guy's de- dead. And it's like, who, who is he? He's the man who shot Liberty Valance. That was kind of like what I was waiting for. Um, and it's kind of interesting that it kind of goes the other way around. Um, so I like that, yeah, in terms of payoff. Um, Aoife, anything you want to add? Anything we haven't discussed already? Um, no, no, I think that's, you know, nothing more from my side. Perfect. All right, then. So um, we normally the end of the podcast. Oh, food waste. I'll, yes, we forgot I'll, the very yeah, important. I'll talk about that nonsense, like, really briefly. Yeah, there is food waste. The steak goes on the floor and he won't eat it. Um, you can smoke in the kitchen, but you can't smoke in the classes in a, in a school. And um, I couldn't think of an obligatory Robocop reference. Um, for some reason um, I was trying to kind of like uh, push for one but sometimes it's just not there no I mean I guess you could argue that the lawless west is a bit like old Detroit you know in that like you have to kind of knock it down just metaphorically in order to like gentrify it and transform it yeah sure yeah 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 I'll buy that we are reaching here yeah, unfortunately, the moment where John Wayne takes Ed, Ed 209 down was left on the cutting room floor, uh, which is sadly disappointing for all of us. All right, but before nice, we wrap nice, up... Nice shooting, son. What's your name? Um, sorry. Uh, I'm anyway. the man who shot Liberty Valance. <laughs> Uh, all right then so before we go we normally ask our guests to recommend something for listeners something you're enjoying at the moment it could be something related to the movie something unrelated to the movie just something that is bringing you joy and you might want to put out there in the world so to give ronan jay and Aoife a chance to think about it, i'm gonna ask andrew to go first um i'll recommend a western that i saw lately it's a newish western it's in the last kind of like three or four years is um sisters brothers i've heard the book is quite good as well I um I enjoyed it a lot. Um, John C. Riley, Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, John C. Riley, Joaquin Phoenix, uh, Riz Ahmed uh, is quite good in it as well. Um, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, yeah. and yeah, it's 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 um it's quite good. And I well I I I enjoyed it anyway. And maybe kind of. Maybe the allegory is laid on a bit too thick, but I I I, I didn't particularly think so. 
and I thought it was it was it was it 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 has a weird kind of a magical turn as well, which I enjoyed. It's kind of like fantastical, which you don't get in um a Very lot often of, in westerns. Uh, westerns. Have you watched Slow, Slow West? Actually, you might like Slow West if that's the kind of thing you like. I've not. If you like that kind of magical realism? Okay. Um. All right, um, Ronan is is petting a cat, um, so I'm I'm going to give him a moment to, to think about. Eva, what would you recommend? Um, I'm going to recommend um, physical media. So um, I I'm not a fan of streaming. I much prefer having physical DVDs and Blu-rays. Um, I briefly discussed this with Darren. Like you know, you get commentaries, you get yes. documentaries, you get lots of behind-the-scenes stuff, and it opens up films in a in a in wonderful ways that you wouldn't get just by by streaming it on Netflix or on whatever streaming service you use. And it's also, you know, there are so many streaming services out there that it's impossible to to subscribe to them all. So, you know, if you want to watch films, you know, why not buy buy a DVD, buy a Blu-ray? It's much much better. I was talking, I think, to Scott Mendelson recently about this, and he made the point that, like, you look at Netflix and they have, like, the movies we loved, which is this, like, two-series thing where they will take an hour and look at a classic beloved movie. And he's making the point that, like, yeah, you're you're seeing now that people are getting back into the kind of stuff that you used to just include as DVD extras, as Laserdisc extras, as Blu-ray extras. So I do, I do really miss that stuff. And actually, like, you mentioned streaming services Criterion's uh, streaming service is quite good because they will include the commentaries and all those extras on there. Yeah, they do. They're very good for that. But but I do miss, I really miss like being able to go, yeah, I would love to hear a director or film historian's commentary on The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance so that I don't feel like an idiot talking about it. It'd probably be James McBride. He does everything. Fair point. Uh, BFI does a very kind of brief kind of kermode thing, but it's not like a proper kind of special extras yeah it's an, it's an intro more than yeah honest. yeah exactly and you're kind of wondering should i watch this before or after <laughs> yeah. spoilers i don't want to know who shot liberty yeah. valance um yeah <laughs> actually can i can i recommend i watched speaking of streaming yeah i did watch something on streaming last night um friedkin uncut documentary oh. on i think it's on prime how is it and uh, it's pretty interesting um um just lots of Directors talking about his films, obviously lots of male directors, of course. Um, but are there other clients, either? I don't think so. Apparently not. But you know, for all that's said and done, Freakin made some really interesting films in the seventies. You know, like seventies and eighties, like Sorcerer and Cruising and The Exorcist, of course. So, uh, and The French Connection. I think they're all superb films, and it's yeah, it's it's worth seeking out if you, if you like Freakin. Fun, fun fact: Freakin blocked me on Twitter. What did you do, Jay? I've no idea. I like. I actually. I think are, are you? I'm, are you? Are you actually on Twitter? Jay? Yeah. Yeah. There we well, go. I mean, my, my, when when I was on Twitter, Aoife, uh in my um, before uh, the recent controversy. Um, what could you have done to the man? Yeah. Look. So I didn't do anything to him. I, I I pretty much constantly praise his films. I don't think I said anything bad. I even searched to try to find CSI? out. CSI? Did you complain about the CSI episode he directed? I didn't even know he did that. Yeah. Um, no, I, I did actually have a search to see. You said you didn't like Killer Joe, didn't you? <laughs> oh, I didn't like Killer Joe. Maybe it was Killer Joe. Killer Joe was dog dog room. Okay. Anyway, that's that, maybe that's what it was. And maybe that that's is what why it was. Jay is Hands up. That, that's why. That's, that's <laughs> I the was one. kind of wondering, has he made stuff lately? Because it seems like such a glaring kind of like, Oh, 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 he made a documentary about an, a priest doing an exorcist that's on Netflix. And he's been directing operas as well. He directed Aida. 
Just um, which is my my favorite recurring two fifty trope when we have like Ronan, Jay, and Eva on is is there an opera of this? And the answer is always <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know what you mean, Darren. When you when you when when you consider that like kind of Woody Allen kind of like has this career that just kind of keeps on going. And um, he didn't block me on Twitter, though. In fairness, no, so. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, it, 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 like, that's and not from lack of trying yeah. by Jay, um, <laughs> or e- even. E- um, oh, sorry, I'm blanking on the. Okay, I, but yeah, I as, a, as an aside, I should note that in my notes for this episode, I had John Ford completely erased from the 250 after multiple entries. Only comparable director Woody Allen, and I was like, "Yeah, let's not bring that up." For very are, different reasons. Very different uh, reasons why yeah. Woody Allen has been completely yeah. erased from yeah. two fifty. Uh, but Jay, oh, as Ronan is continuing to pet a cat, Jay, what would you recommend? I'm going to keep continuing. I, um, I know, but I, I just like bringing it back. It's a good. Image. I have a couple of things actually. One is a kind of a, a vast wade of something, which is um, we've Westerns. all done our kind. We've no, not far off. Well, maybe it's far off, but we've all done our what we had to do to get through lockdowns and various things the last eighteen months. Uh, mine was essentially uh, Italian giallo horror films, and I'd recommend those. I've watched I've watched like fourteen Dario Argento films this year, and various others from Sergio Martino, uh, Lucio Fulci, and various. I I've had an absolute fucking ball. They're glorious and brilliant, and sometimes daft. Uh, there's one set in Dublin, which I can't remember the name of exactly, but it's incredible. Well, it's, it's terrible, but it's incredible to see Dublin being the, like a set jello thing. It's really strange. Um, and I've absolutely had an, a ball, and I'd heartily recommend, like, if you have Arrow player who has a lot of our uh, shutter, they leave a huge amount. And honestly, I, I'm not, like, I think 70% of the films I've watched this year's horror films. So, Worth uh, a stab, then, is what you're saying. Badoomch. Um, and the other thing I'll recommend, which is on Mubi, um, which is a forty-six minute documentary Even my called. Mubi only has things for thirty days, so by the time this no, comes it out... doesn't anymore. That those those, those days are over. They they, yeah, they ruined it by uh, they have a library and everything now. It's they've ruined their own kind of unique selling point. They've, they've they've ruined it. But Damn anyway, it, it does mean that films do stay on, right? So take away that urgency. Yeah, there's a forty-six minute documentary called "The Prostitutes of Leon Speak" from nineteen seventy-five. And it's brilliant. It's a documentary, of, it's a kind of a, a group of uh, sex workers who take over a church in Paris, or in, sorry, in Lyon in 1975 and to protest the kind of treatment from police and all the rest of it. And it's just, the, the director brings a camera in to interview them in the uh, church. And it is probably the best documentary I've seen this year. It is absolutely fantastic. And in a sense, you watch, I think it knocks about on YouTube as well. So if you don't have a movie, You'll probably find it on there. It's very low budget and all the rest of it, but it is absolutely fantastic. An absolute knockout. And it's less than 50 minutes. You'd like, just do it. Just watch it. It's great. Okay. And Ronan, as you continue to pet a cat, what would you recommend no, for listeners? The, the cat has taken off now. Oh. So I suppose I'd be remiss if I didn't recommend cats themselves. Great creatures. I would um, hardly agree. And, and the movie... And the, yeah, the movie, I actually like do. I've watched the movie three times. Yeah, <laughs> I watched go. it once because Jay made me. Dar- Darren's watched it like five times, right? Yeah, but Darren, Darren has unique kind of uh, ability to rewatch absolutely anything. It's remarkable. Ha- quick question. Is it better or worse than Gotti? It's both. And what does that mean? What do you mean by better? There, yeah, that was that was the follow-up question. Like, what does that even mean, that qualifier? It's comparable. That's all I could say about it. <laughs> uh, would you, you say it's a perfect watch? You're feline very excited about it. Oh, my Lord. Sorry, Ronan, I cut you off. You were just recommending cats, Tom Hooper's cats. Uh, yeah, cats. Great, great. 
Um, so I suppose two things spinning off from Liberty Valance. First of all, go to YouTube and watch uh, Jimmy Stewart on the Johnny Carson show. Yes. A poem about his dog, Bo. It is absolutely I, I, I nearly cried today when Ron sent to me. I was like, Jesus Christ, Ron. Um, it, it will make you cry. So, you know, if you if you don't want to do that, maybe don't watch it. Save it for another day. It's lovely. It's lovely. It's really, really lovely. You know, this is this is uh, Jimmy Stewart in prime um, lovely old man mode. Um, also, you rated K9 out of 10? <laughs> Why? Um, because I mentioned it earlier, The Rising of the Moon, really, really fascinating John yes. Ford film, and it's it's quite underseen, I think. Um, I hadn't even heard of it before the IFI screened it. Um, I, you know, The Quiet Man sucks up all the air as the Irish John Ford film, and um, it has some, you know, downsides in, in its portrayal of Ireland. Um, I think Rising of the Moon is really fascinating, actually. One of, you know, it's three sections, one of them based on a Lady Gregory play, I think. The others are, um, I think there's a Sean O'Casey uh, adaptation. Yeah, sounds right, right. It's really, really fascinating, and and really hilarious. The middle section, all set in a train station, is oh, it's glorious. So, so That's funny. absolutely glorious. Um, it's hysterical. Cyril Cusack is in it too. Wonderful film. Um, and uh, last but not least, in terms of things I've actually watched recently, I haven't been watching a lot of films. I've been taking more comfort out of baking, so I can recommend a film that uh, brings baking into it and staying in the Western theme. Uh, Kelly Reichardt's First Cow. Um, have you I made? Saw. Have you actually baked any of those um, are they oily, oily cakes? cakes? Yeah. I haven't made oily cakes, but I did make the claffy tea they make in the film because I was just so inspired by it. It looked delicious, and claffy teas are, are incredible. I didn't milk a cow myself to to make it, um, but it was damn tasty. Um, I think first cow is is a very very different kind of film to the westerns. Uh, you, you, to this kind of western that we've been discussing, um, it's it shows a really really harsh world and nice people trying to survive in it and, and finding friendship. It's it's quite sad, but for me, um, it was actually the first film I saw back in cinemas after um, after they reopened. Um, I had already seen it, but nothing stuck out of the new releases as much as just wanting to see this again. And I loved it the first time I saw it, but in rewatching it, I really really loved Found it. Very the emotion moving. of being back in a cinema, absolutely. Um, it just it knocked my socks off. There, there's something about the rhythm of it. Um, I, I feel like I lived in that film for a little while, so I really heartily recommend that one. Um, and one of the last appearances, I believe possibly the last appearance of Rene Abergonis, actually, um, as an actor, which is... Um, but yes. Uh, and for myself, um, showing how ridiculously uncultured and unqualified I am to be talking about John Ford, when it comes to movies from 1968, I checked my letterbox, and apparently... All I have done is watch Roadrunner shorts. Um, so I would wholeheartedly recommend watching classic Chuck Jones uh, Roadrunner shorts as well. Um, also, this was the year I think Roger Corman was in the middle of his kind of cycle of adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe as well. If you're looking for something that is also similarly kind of classical and studio set. Um, they're great. They, they are fantastic. And and very much kind of like, like this is looking back on the Western. That is kind of like looking back on the classic horror movie, getting ready for the revolution that will come towards the, the late 60s with all the movies that Jay kind of suggested there. So those would be uh, my recommendations. And also, obviously, we mentioned earlier, but like Deadwood uh, as well is fantastic. Binge that in lockdown. Um, and uh, finally, the, the late John Ford stuff, the Apology Tour, because uh, I found that stuff really fascinating when I checked it out and doesn't get as much love as some of his more iconic stuff. So that's uh, Sergeant uh, Rutledge. Um, that is also uh, Cheyenne Autumn. And that is also Seven Women. Uh, and those are all worth checking out. Uh, even if Chinese Autumn is something like, what, three hours long, involving a seemingly four-hour stopover in Dodge City starring Jimmy Stewart as Wyatt Earp, um, which is is interesting. Um, all right, then. So before we wrap up, then, where can we find you guys online? So, Aoife, watch out. What are you doing? What are you doing? Um, I'm I'm on Twitter as Aoife Martin, um, but she probably won't see me there because I've kind of given up on Twitter. Um, but, yeah, I do write 
the occasional column for the journal, to the journal.ie. If you just Google my name, you'll find me there. Cool. Uh, and Ronan, where are you at? Watch up there. Uh, similarly, I'm not using Twitter at all anymore, but there is an old account there, um, Baron Ronan, and likewise Letterboxd. Um, you, I'm trying to be more diligent, uh, diligent about actually reviewing things these days. I noticed there was a line on, on one of your recent watches, actually, which was cool. Um, and, and Jay, what, what about you? What can you well, I'm not on Twitter, Darren. <laughs> if that's what um, I'm insinuating. Why that, Jay? Yeah. I don't know. Um, things happen anyway. Those things are in the past. I am not abreast of those. I, 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 I have no idea. You'll have to tell me how it's... So, 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 there was a thing. I was, you know, he was kicked off Twitter for bullying William yeah, Friedkin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got permabanned for bullying. So, uh, well, yeah. was, like To be that, absolutely that clear, fun. just in case anybody is ambiguous, it isn't. What happened to Jay is absolutely insane. No, it's, it technically is, but it's not. Uh, it was dreadfully unfair, but sure, such is life. Um, so I'm not there. I am a letterbox or whatever the hell's name I am. I don't know what I am. My name. Jay, so uh, Jay, I'm on Letterbox Adamu. Yeah. So if you want to read about Italian horrors, I'm your man. Actually, yeah. Actually, can I just say that one one of my one of the pleasures I've had over over the last couple of months is reading Jay's reviews of films I watched when I was a teenager. All these Giallo films. <laughs> great. It's great to see Jay discovering, finally catching up with the rest of us. Well, see, what happened to Eve is I, I got down off the elevated horror snobby mountain a few years ago and uh, life has been a bowl of cherries since. I, I will say one of my favourite pastimes on Letterboxd is looking at a movie I quite enjoy and opening Jay's two-star review. Uh, yeah. so, quite a lot, Darren. It really does. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when me, when myself and Darren agree wholeheartedly on a film, it's very that's when the world will end. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the first sign that, of the Four Horsemen. That's how I, I realized Jay was off Twitter. Was I watched like Rob Zombie's Halloween too, and I was like, which is a masterpiece. And I was like, feck, I have to acknowledge Jay might be right. This is really good. And yes. I was like, I need to tell Jay, and I was like, oh, what Jay gone? <laughs> Um, yes also that's on my recommendation is watch Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 it is the best Halloween film yes we are coming into October at this stage so yes I've said around it it's the best Halloween film it, that, that's wrong that, it's like, not it, wrong it's factually correct that, that is, it's the okay. best Halloween film I, I agreed with you to... <laughs> better than Halloween yeah, yes he, no no yes <laughs> yes okay I'm saying yes. Yeah, you make it very hard to agree with you sometimes. I know, right? <laughs> I'm burning all the goodwill I have. <laughs> it's, like, no. it's the third best Halloween movie. It is the best Halloween sequel. There we go. Fair. Uh, there's there's phraseology we can all we'll, 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 uh, we'll, We're like the kind of, you know, the Paris Accords here. We are just trying to find a form of words so we can agree and get the hell out of here. Yeah, that's it exactly. So what, Let's go what for I want wine. to know now is how can it be the third best Halloween Film, yeah, but there we need yeah. the best sequel. Yeah, there's a maths <laughs> well, problem there. Well, you see, there. because there's two, there's two origin films, yeah. Eva. The reboots? No, no, no. There's a maths problem there. You have to solve. Okay, yes. focus. I got solved it for you, people. Like you, myself and Darren know what's going on. You just can all figure it out. Like, <laughs> I, I'm not doing the heavy lifting for everyone. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Um, so we. We'll... Doctor was a woman. <laughs> <laughs> That. Um, if one car is traveling at 50 miles an hour yeah, they leave it okay. i can pro- okay i promise i will answer this riddle when we get to um our actual halloween episode there's there's the teaser you there. should do halloween too when it turns up on the 250 and i will be there for that <laughs> the, the top it will turn up the bottom, zombie fans will be there they'll they'll get it on the list given don't you it worry. has a rating of 5.3 out of 10 you'll probably be waiting quite a while i can wait darren i'm not that old <laughs> um, 
All right. Um, we'll be back next week uh, where we'll be covering a hot new entry uh, on A-list on the IMDb. The new Bruce Willis movie from 2020 called Anti-Life in the UK and Breach in the US has made one of the lists on the IMDb. Is it the top 250? And joining us for that discussion will be the fantastic Joe Griffin. It is streaming on Netflix if you want to check it out. We're really looking forward to it. I do not. Thank you so much, Ronan, Jay, and Aoife for your time. This was a really, really great discussion. Thanks for coming Uh, on. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Bye, guys. Thank you so much. Bye. The man who shot Liberty Valent, he shot Liberty Valent. He was the bravest of them all.